0: You are safe from harm on the grid. You are safe from harm.
1: life programs that precisely suit your needs and desires our planet is challenged decent people need to be protected so enjoy the present while we hope for the future slip on to the life experience grid
0: today
2: was some life. I wanted it to go on forever. Me too. I enjoyed it. Yes. And in the next program, we'll get the balance we need to continue our evolution. Athena controls
1: newspapers, TV stations, and all media, including The Grid. You're her consumers. And I believe you need truth to develop morality and decency. The Grid always provides facts. Facts don't always reveal the truth. You feel so tender,
0: you feel so wet, you feel so secure, so deep in-
2: Your letter. It seems really odd that you've written to me at this moment. I need someone to talk to now more than ever. Your dream sounds wonderful. You want to be a star? It could happen. I'm working on a dream project myself. It's something I've been involved with for years. When I saw the stunning photo in your letter, I was reminded of the things I had to go through to get noticed when I was your age. We both share complicated problems. If I try to help you, Will you swear to keep it secret? Your sincerely, Ray Hyde. Find out what being a star
0: really feels like.
3: Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.
2: I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to The World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world
4: is wrong. The world is wrong about you. Vanilla Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, it's Vanilla skies. <laughs> Welcome to <clears throat> the world is wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists. The world is wrong about. I am your
3: host, Andros Jones, and I am not Brian Connolly. What? Uh, <laughs> I know. Even though we get we got mistaken for being the same person a lot at Vulcan Video, though we look and sound nothing alike, as I'm sure the listeners have already queued in. I'm I'm very much not Brian. I'm AJ Gonzalez. Uh,
4: Brian's co-host on the director's wall. We've talked about it so many times. I'm a huge fan, and I'm excited to have you here subbing for Brian as one of our guest co-hosts.
3: AJ? Uh, thank you. Thank you. I am excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
4: It's a double AJ show.
3: Yeah, it is. When uh, I see you, uh, your initials pop on, up on my phone, I wonder, why am I calling myself? Yeah, it's a, It's in Brian's contract that he
4: only does podcasts with guys named AJ.
3: Yeah, it, it's a uh, it's job security. Anyway,
4: we're going to talk a, a little bit about the director's wall before we get into this. But we're mainly here to talk about a film that's kind of from the year 2001. But as our mix up at the beginning uh, demonstrated, it also is kind of from 1997, which gives us a, an interesting millennial window to view the film Vanilla Sky from Cameron Crowe and... Uh, And one, Thomas Cruz. But before we get into that, you mentioned that you and Brian used to work at Vulcan Video in Austin, Texas.
3: Is that how you met? Uh, Yeah, it is. He he hired me, so it worked out for both of us, I guess.
4: For both of you and me, because he was that began his AJ fetishism, or both of you (laughs) and him. It works. uh, (laughs) I meant
3: to. I meant it for me and Brian, but I think it works both ways. It works for all of us. It was a great. It was a great day for America. Yeah, great day for AJ's. Uh, yeah, I uh, applied for a job at Vulcan. He's one of the managers and hired me. And over the course of working there four years, we got to be friends. And I was really into podcasts, and he wanted to talk about the films of M. Night Shyamalan. And so we decided to start a podcast about M. Night Shyamalan. And then once we ran out of M. Night Shyamalan films to talk about, we changed our name to The Director's Wall. So if you listen to the early episodes of The Director's Wall, we're calling ourselves The M. Night Shift. And that explains that. Uh, but yeah, I feel we... like
4: it was a missed opportunity to call yourself The Cast.
3: That that was not one of like the dozen names that occurred to us, though. I don't know. It seems like
4: it's the kind of thing you could shout in a dark room, and then mm-hmm. M. Night Shyamalan would miraculously appear. Shyamalanicast. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, so yes, uh, yes, it, it was the M. Night shift, which is it's classier. It's classier. Are you a fan of the Stephen King book of short stories? i
3: am yeah that, that's a really fun short story collection it's a lot of his very early short stories uh, that were published in like men's you know in quotes men slash like adult magazines when they still they had to put something between the photo spreads uh and he's still very much like playing with like a Twilight Zone EC Comics theme. So a lot of them feel like you're reading like a an, an advanced Tales from the Crypt story. So they're like a little silly with, you know, it turns out that this thing is totally a monster. It's a truck that kills you, or it's a, it's a washing machine that kills you. But he writes still very, still early in his career with such skill that it is a very fun and scary to read. Uh, sometimes they come back, Children of the Corn, The Mangler, uh, Trucks later turned into Maximum Overdrive, and a uh, sort of a spinoff on Salem's Lot is in that collection. I, I really recommend it if you want some short horror fiction. And it's early in his career, so they are actually short because he had like, you know, uh, a count limit. He wasn't number one best-selling author that could just write and write, and no one ever edited him anymore. So, uh, yeah, fun, quick, short story. This is why, I mean, I know
4: Brian. I love Brian. He's great. But I now, especially because I have a podcast with him, this is why you're my favorite part of the director's wall. You are so <laughs> informed. I just, like, I handed you the tiniest little bit of layups, and you just gave me a solid, grounded, academic take on this book, which was my first Stephen King book. So bravo, high five. I can't wait to get into talking about Vanilla Sky
3: with you. This is so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun for me. Uh, It's fun for me to be here with you and to get a chance to talk about all this stuff that uh, I don't really get the chance to talk about anymore because we don't have a Vulcan video anymore. Pandemic casualty, unfortunately.
4: Yeah, so clearly, I, I'm, I've, I, we've talked about the director's wall a lot on this podcast. I love it, but I, I gather you've been to some degree following what we've been doing here on the world is wrong. Before we get into discussing Vanilla Sky, do you have any or like highlights, lowlights, notes? I mean, if we, you know. Uh, when I first had Brian on the show, there were a couple areas, I don't even remember now, where I had to take him to task about things I'd heard. Like, I love your show, but even on a podcast you love, you might hear one or two things where you're like, oh, I wish I was in the room so I could argue with that. Do you have do you have any bones to pick or certain areas that you felt like, oh, I wish I could have been a part of that conversation?
3: Oh, no, no, no bones to pick, though, uh, I mean, oh, so many of the movies you guys have done are I got to say I'm the world on most of those. (laughs) But uh, but that's the fun thing about the podcast is that it's you guys championing these these films, looking at them from a different angle. And I actually did. You know, I I, I had no inkling to watch The Paperboy at all. I heard several bad movie podcasts uh, poke fun at The Paperboy by listening to you guys. And my wife and I were like, well, let's let's check out the paper boy. And we did did not care for it. But uh... (laughs) (laughs) that's not where I thought
4: this was going. I thought you were going to say you loved it. How could anyone not like this movie? Okay, go on, go on. Sorry.
3: But you but you guys, your enthusiasm for it and your like kind, uh, very positive. That's what I love about the podcast. Very positive attitudes. You're not like taking the world to task like you guys are. Everyone's wrong about this. There's like no anger. It's just hey, I think everyone needs to look at this movie a different way, or you know, turn off your serious part and watch this Adam Sandler movie, or um, yeah, just look at at a film you have preconceived notions about from a different angle. Check at, check your preconceived notions. Give this film a go, and you might be. Surprised, uh, I listened to uh, your episode on Ten recently, mm-hmm. which is a film. I was surprised that it even came up because I thought, well, this is a this is a great film. Like, how how is the world wrong about this movie? And Brian pointed out that it's a movie that was in the pop culture for a really long time, but now has kind of faded, and people don't really talk about it as much. It used to get referenced, like like every other TV show or movie had a reference to 10, the Bo Derek running down the beach and now not so much, which is a shame because it is a great movie that has just gotten overlooked because, you know, maybe it came out so long ago that there's been so much other, you know, so much other uh, films and movies and books to talk about, but uh, let's, you know, throw this one Back in the conversation, that's how I feel about uh, also your episode on the strange love of Martha Ivers or Martha Ives. Ivers. Ivers. Ivers, which is a movie I saw after I uh, for the first time after I cut my cable subscription. I no longer had TCM, and I was going through classic film withdrawal and I'm like, well, what are what are the ten classic movies on Amazon Prime? Because <laughs> good <laughs> luck finding anything on Netflix. Uh, and Strange Love of Martha Ivers was one of them. And it has such this this uh, captivating title that sounds like you've seen it before, or you should know about it. And I read the plot, and I looked at the cast, and I'm like, well, the names are familiar, the plot seems kind of familiar, but I know I've never seen this movie before. And checked it out. And it is a great movie that goes in a totally different direction from where you think... It might go, and the the uh, poor drifter that knows the – the well, he does, actually, he doesn't know. That's the whole point of the movie. Mm-hmm. But you expect the poor guy is going to try and blackmail the uh, upstanding, wealthy, uh, uh, socially prominent couple. But really, it's the other way around. And uh, it's Kirk Douglas and Barbara Stanwyck are trying to uh, like run the other guy out of town. And it's, uh, it, it's one of those movies that uh, you, just, you should watch. It's uh, not on the same level as, I mean, popularity-wise as, like, Double Indemnity or, uh, you know, Touch of Evil. These films that get played all the time on TCM or the Criterion channel. But you should still check it out. Just because you've never heard of a movie doesn't mean it's not worth watching.
4: As far as I'm concerned, if Barbara Stan works in it, it's worth watching. Uh, that's my she's one of those people who I'm just sort of like, I feel like I feel like given a time machine, she could really kick ass. Like now. Like I feel like she was great in her time, but and certainly she was very successful. But I would love to see what she would do in a world where she could be in the kind of movies that like where she beats people up <laughs> like I, I just like to see her in, in something where she could really kick ass as opposed to having to do it all with her eyes and her her words but to be able to actually Scarlett Johansson slide kick Fred McMurray into a wall I just
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh totally that movie I mean I loved double indemnity but there I yeah there, there's a uh, I think an even more interesting version of that movie that you could make now with the same people, if Billy Wilder was, if everyone was still around now, they could make a really, really interesting version of Double Indemnity. Uh, yeah, she's uh, she she's great though. In Double Indemnity, not my favorite version of Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, I saw a film series here at AFS, the Austin Film Society, that was like all of Stanwyck's. Uh, early films or some of her early films like night nurse Mm -hmm. and like those were really good like when people would kind of go on about like oh how great barbara stanwick was i'm like i don't i don't really get it guys but after watching these early movies like oh okay i see i i see and just her um maybe it's just the character she's playing in double indemnity or maybe it's just her hair She's got kind of like You're the ridiculous... second person
4: to be on this show, Kristen Lopez, who was on our episode about that to talk about that. She made a point of discussing her bad wig. She could have she could have learned something from Nicole Kidman as far as the wig work. But again, give her a time machine.
3: Her hair looks like she's wearing the same kind of wig that Bugs Bunny wears <laughs> to <laughs> pretend to be a girl bunny to seduce <laughs> Elmer Fudd.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's uh. That's it's an ungenerous description but not inaccurate. <laughs> you for a second there I feel like you were just you were giving me the best segue because you were saying that they could make a better version of this if Billy Wilder was around and we know that Billy Wilder is a great inspiration on the director of Vanilla Sky, Cameron Crowe, and he of course is trying to make a much more interesting version of 1997's Abre los ojos. From Alejandro Amanabar? Amanabar? How do you pronounce Amanabar?
3: Yeah, I, I think he says Amenabar. I've never heard the man himself pronounce his own name, so I'm not entirely sure I've only ever heard Americans try to pronounce his name. That's the best way to learn anything. <laughs> so forgive okay. us to our uh, fluent Spanish-speaking listeners. And friends of Alejandro. But we're We're trying.
4: But that's basically what we're here to discuss is, I mean, it may or we'll discuss whether or not it is a more interesting version of the original, but it is definitely an attempt from a fan of Billy Wilder, so we should probably get into discussing this film. Do you want to uh, set up the clip or give some indication of of your approach, or do you want to just play the clip and then tell us what this is about?
3: Uh, Let's Let's just play the clip. You fucked Julie Gianni again, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I know someone was there when I called. You had that tone. Oh, no, man. I got a cold. I'm hanging in tonight, you know? I had a cold. I was alone? Fine. You can do whatever you want with your life. Thanks. But one day you'll know what love truly is. It's the sour and the sweet. And I know Sour. Which allows me to appreciate this week. Julie Gianni is a friend. Sometimes we sleep together. OW. What? 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 My dream girl. Julie Gianni. Is your fuck buddy. Oh. We wanna to listen. To.
0: Slow down, man.
1: What do we got here?
4: Barcelona, Looper, Radio hit?
1: Look out! Look out! Fuck! We almost died. I know. Plan on death was right there in front of me. And you know what happened? Your life flashed before my eyes. How was it? Almost worth dying for.
3: so vanilla sky released in december of 2001 is a remake of abre los ojos open your eyes directed by alejandro amenabar and written by amenabar and mateo gill cameron crow describes it as his cover of that film and i think that is a good way to look at vanilla sky Stars Tom Cruise, Penelope Cruz, Cameron Diaz, Kurt Russell, Jason Lee, Noah Taylor, Timothy Spall, Tilda Swinton, Michael Shannon, and Alicia Witt. And it's just a great cast from top to bottom. So Tom Cruise plays David Ames, a wealthy head of a New York publishing company. He lives in a big, fancy, exclusive apartment. He has expensive cars. He has a casual relationship with Cameron Diaz. And it's a flashy, appealing life, but there's not much substance to his life until he meets Sophia, played by Penelope Cruz. And his night with her makes him start to rethink his life and the way he approaches uh, his life. But then he is in a terrible car accident that disfigures him. And it seems like now the movie is going to be about him adjusting to life after the accident. But then some surprising and suspicious things start happening, and it becomes a bit of a mystery, and then a thriller, and then a bit of a science fiction film, and all of those things. But done only in the way that Cameron Crowe could do them, which is what I think makes this movie a surprise, even if you have seen the original. And worth watching, uh, and worth watching a second time, and taking a closer look. It's a film that really uh, just has so much to offer on many, many levels.
4: Bravo, uh, man! Let's, that's, let's uh, talk about it. Yeah, that's not uh, as easy to describe as the Rain People.
3: <laughs> oh, I uh, I was not planning to go into that much detail. You couldn't uh, help
4: yourself. You got totally caught up in their lucid dream. So, AJ, how is the world wrong about Vanilla Sky? So, I feel like the world is wrong
3: about Vanilla Sky in a couple ways. Uh, and after the fact is uh, because this movie was a big hit for the year. It made something like two hundred million dollars worldwide. Uh, yeah, $200 million against a $68 million budget. So it did really well at the, at the box office. A lot of people saw it. But where the world, I think, is wrong about this is that because of the ending of the film, because of the twist, because that there is a twist, uh, some people take it as this is a movie that is trying to trick you or it thinks it's smarter than you and it's totally not it's you know it's telling uh like a, a, an interesting intriguing story but it is it is not trying to talk down to the audience at any point and i feel like the other way the world is wrong about this movie is that at this time Totally not the movie's fault. There, there was just a general backlash against two things. One, I think, is movies that played on this theme of what's real, what's not real. There's a whole lot of movies like this around the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium. And the other being this is just after Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman... Had their very public divorce, and and so then Nicole Kidman, you know, she goes on to be like she really takes off as a movie star after they get divorced. She's in Moulin Rouge. She wins an Oscar for The Hours in two thousand two, and I feel like there was a like a, a group, a contingent of people that were. Like, if I'm pro Nicole, then I have to be against Tom and I have to be against his new girlfriend, Penelope Cruz. And Penelope Cruz had just broken big. She, in America, she was already a big star in Spain and had won a Goya Award, their equivalent of an Oscar, for a film called uh, The Girl of Your Dreams, which is a really good film I recommend, though it is about World War II and fascism. So it's kind of a bummer fun 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 but then in 2000 like her first big american movie is a not not very good film but kind of enjoyable called woman on top where she's like a sexy chef and really wait hold uh,
4: hold 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 on a back there a second buddy (laughs) you might you may think that i'm gonna say oh well she was a party guest in the butterfly effect in 1995 but no You've just skipped over a film that's going to be covered on this podcast. The High Low Country.
3: The High Low Country. Have you seen The High Low Country? I have not. I know it only as a poster. It is a truly great,
4: like, flat out, like, great, great film in every way a film can be great, including being the first American film to really launch... Penelope Cruz you can go on I know that this was not seen by many people it will be once we've done our work here at the world is wrong podcast but I just couldn't let you just entirely jump over one of my favorite movies <laughs> to get to right. something right. I haven't seen that you are we're already it, saying you don't like that much
3: <laughs> so it it does come after it comes after open your eyes and then then she does the girl of your dreams then which where she wins the Goya award then the high low country then all about my mother, Almodovar's uh, 1999, just you know, monster, amazing film. Then Woman on Top, and then All the Pretty Horses. Blow Captain Corelli's Mandolin, and then Vanilla Sky. And uh, I, th- I, I think All the Pretty Horses is fine. You know, I think it's good, not great. I think Blow is. I think it's good. Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Sure. It's not the best Captain Corelli's Mandolin. I've never read the book, Uh, but, uh, yeah. So I feel like there was just this, like the Penelope Cruz being the it girl overload. The, the
4: leading, well, like her run of like, she's the leading lady to, uh, Matt Damon, and then wait, Johnny Depp, then and Johnny then Nicholas Cage, Cage, now Tom so Cruise. Now Tom Cruise. Yeah. So yeah, I get. And she was. I mean, it's kind of amazing. This is. I, I hadn't when I went back. Can, is it okay if I jump in a little bit? Sure, please. Because I feel like we're talking now. So, uh, was there any other points about how the world was wrong or is wrong about Vanilla Sky? Because I don't want to interrupt you. Uh, my
3: argument. my third point about how the world is wrong. About Vanilla Sky is that it is at its at its core a a sentimental film a sweet a sweet and sour film and that's okay it's fine to be sentimental I feel like when movies touch on uh sentiment and feelings like how you feel about not just like a A loved one, like a romance, but how you feel about your life, about the things you love in life, your relationships with people, uh, friends, acquaintances, how you were not so good to someone, but you now see how, how that was wrong. Uh, There's people tend to get really uh, resistant to to sentiment. And I think this is why there's always a hesitance for a lot of modern, modern audiences, not all obviously, but to watch classic films, which are so sentimental and so much about, uh, about love and about friendship and about good feelings, you know, uh, enduring and triumphing that, it's hard for a modern day audience to take a film like the Philadelphia story seriously. But if you just, you know check your your modern, uh, I don't want to say cynicism because I think that's the wrong word, but like your your, your modern prejudices against like a, a very a very open, innocent kind of sentimentalism. I think you'll find a really good movie uh, as Leonard Malton, before he shows a classic film to a, like a film class he teaches at USC or UCLA. He always tells them like, look, you're cool. You're cool. We know you're, I know you're cool. You don't have to beat up on this movie. That's just about people wanting to be together. This movie that's has, you know, obviously fake backdrops. Like we know, we know, and it's okay. It's okay that the movie is fake. It's okay that the the dialogue isn't realistic. It's all pretend. And, and that's okay. You're cool. You don't have to prove it, but by by picking on this movie. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) I have a feeling.
4: I have a feeling we're going to go a little bit long on this one. So I just want to like. I'm going to take. A, let's play it. Let's play a quick little ad for one of our Paper House compatriot shows, and then we'll come back and dig into this film.
3: Do you call yourself a music fan? Are you the one making the playlist for all the parties? Then you got to listen to the Pinch Music Podcast, where we interview musicians, engineers, producers, and music lovers of all types. We even put together playlists for any and all occasions. So if you want to have the Beatles versus Stones debate, pick up some engineering tips, or just discover a new artist, you gotta check out the Pinch Music Podcast. All a part of the Paper House Network.
4: Okay, so I'm so glad you brought this film to our attention, AJ. Uh, I, I liked this film when it came out, but I haven't thought much about it since. I had never, I had never seen the. Uh, original film until preparing for this podcast and although i like cameron crow i think i may have like i like a lot of people may have lost the bead on him or some people might say that he's lost the bead on us over his last few films and we can discuss that but that's one of those things where it's i always like to be reminded that there are directors whose best work rivals anyone's and is really, really close to my heart. Rob Reiner is a, is a director who I think is in a, a similar category where he, there was a time in my life when he was considered one of the best directors in the world, deservedly so. And he, and again, he, and like, like Cameron Crowe, he sort of veered off into his own direction and lost a lot of, of us, but it doesn't mean that that run of amazing films was great. wasn't great. And so this has also been a time for me to sort of reappreciate Cameron Crowe, and I and I can go back and see at least one of those films, recent, more recent films that uh, I had heard wasn't good, and certainly isn't, I don't think, is not as good as this film we'll be talking about. I'm thinking of Aloha, but certainly still has a lot of those touches, and exactly what you're talking about—that that, that uh, classical sense of romanticism expressed. In cinema that is really that feels really good and is a very is something that I love. So do you want to talk, let's talk a little bit about Cameron Crowe, first of all, because we both listen to his uh, his commentary and I love how musically he directs. He was talking about this as a cover, which I thought was br- brilliant. It just made me like him and the film more and give me a way to look at it. As a musician, I know what it's like to cover a song. So I kind it made me like some of the ways that he was quoting and referencing the other film. And it felt like it also was really honorable uh, as a director. Like he's not trying to he's very clearly giving the authorship to the author, but saying, OK, yeah. Alan Toussaint may have written this song, but now we're the Stones and we're going to do it, except he's more like the Who's version of Fortune Teller. Anyway, we'll get into that as we get deeper into this. But I also loved that he talked about how much, like the music that he would play on the set during scenes where people weren't speaking or were were reacting and tell us what songs they were doing it to. It just was a fantastic key to exploring a film. It makes me want to go back and listen to more of his commentaries,
3: Uh, Yeah, totally. And this was the first time, this was one of the first DVD commentaries I ever listened to. It was around the time when I really got into film, and not just the movies themselves and who was in them, but like, what did those names mean that came up in the credits? And I listened to uh, Wes Anderson and Owen... Owen Wilson's commentary for Rushmore and Cameron Crowe's commentary for Vanilla Sky. Those are the first two I ever listened to and just changed my appreciation for film in a whole new way. And that's how I learned that uh, a lot of the dialogue in films is recorded after the fact. So it doesn't matter if we're going to do this scene and have a, have sweetness follows by REM playing in the background, because we're going to re-record the dialogue anyway. And knowing that it just made it, so so cool it made the whole movie making process so cool and then when i uh was in film school and had to make my short film i was very aware like okay like when we w- when i filmed this scene because there was uh, i was using a uh, bolex uh 16 millimeter camera so there was no sound anyway so was like okay what song am i gonna play to really get my my friends into the the moment of what i'm trying to capture and that's something that would not have occurred to me if i hadn't listened to cameron crowe's commentary for vanilla sky this film we did we've talked about this film a little bit before in preparation for this uh i and you asked me if it was my favorite cameron crowe movie or if i thought it was the best and my answer to both is yes but i, I haven't told you exactly how much i love this film yeah. Which is that this film, uh, it's my Back to the Future aside, which came to me so early, I don't remember how. It's just part of my being. This is my number one film. If when I decided I have to make my top 10 movies, what are my personal top 10 movies? This was number one, and Rushmore is number two. And they were all made between 1998. And 2004, between when I was like uh, 14 and uh, 19, very formative period in my life. And this movie, it changed my life in no one big way, but in a hundred different little ways. And so I do have a personal attachment to this film. But I think there is so much to be appreciated in the film itself, which is why I uh, suggested it for the podcast because i didn't want to talk about the movie that i thought the world was wrong about just because it meant so much to me but because i think there is a whole lot even if i take away all of this stuff how all these bands and other filmmakers and all the stuff that crow references that i decided i had to check out if you take that away i still think this is a really interesting film to uh To watch, and if you don't like it, or if if it maybe doesn't sit well, to check it out again. Because if there ever was a movie designed to be watched a second time, it's, you know, this is one of them Vanilla Sky. Wow, that's,
4: that's, so this is, this is really formative to you. Now, I'm really glad then that I shared with you more material on the Who's Lifehouse. (laughs) which I feel like is crucial to understanding this film and Cameron Crowe as a director.
3: It, it is. I'm glad you shared that with me. Uh, if for no other reason, then I have, like, I know about the who I I know their songs. I know that teenage wasteland is actually called Baba O'Reilly. Bravo. (laughs) Thank you. Um, but I had never listened to like a, a rock opera. Like I, would never, I've never seen The Wall or listened. To, I think I listened to The Wall once, but to to the actual um, like uh, r- record. Uh, but like I'd never seen or watched Tommy, and but to uh, uh, the be, be experience to to Pete Townsend slash The Who's Lifehouse made me realize, oh my god. This is not only is this Cameron Crowe's rock opera, but Cameron Crowe has been making film <laughs> rock operas this whole time. It, it was this big, like, like this, this window or this door that you opened. And now I, I was like, oh, my God, I can look at his his films this way, too. It, it's like the moment when I realized when Whit Stillman actually made made a, a Jane Austen adaptation. And then I realized all of Witt Stillman's films have been modern-day Jane Austen films. That's what he's been doing this whole time, which is why they seem so out of time and out of place. And Cameron Crowe has been making rock operas this whole time. Even Jerry Maguire, Almost Famous, definitely. Even Elizabeth Town, even Aloha.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, you're making my day, AJ. This is like... I've been... (laughs) I was, I was ready for you to be like, maybe, well, it's a good idea, but I love that it's, it's like the Rosetta Stone to, to, and to one of your favorite directors who I, again, I had no idea that Vanilla Sky was such a unimportant film to you. Then it's, I feel like, yeah, this is great you've made, you've, you've made my day because this is what we live for, right, is when we have an idea and we share it with someone who loves another thing and then they're like, oh, wow. And you just gave me a bunch of information. Like, I had never thought of it like that. But you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. This is a totally the weird non sequitur, but I'm sure you've seen. You've seen the the Stairway to Heaven scene from Almost Famous.
3: Uh, yes. Yeah.
4: The one with Francis McDormand where they make her listen to the whole of Stairway to Heaven. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't know. To me, when you were talking about it, I was like, Well, that's, yeah, that's the, that's a rock opera. I, I, I'm more, I get why not, but I mourn for that scene not being in the movie. I feel like the movie's already a masterpiece, but that would have been the scene that would have like made it such an obvious masterpiece. Like that's just a, would have been such a, a hard decision to make, but it's a fully, that is fully a rock opera moment. (laughs) It's like, uh, wow. Okay. Cool. So let me explain really quickly to people what Lifehouse is. So for people who don't aren't familiar. So in 1970, as a follow-up to the to the big success of Tommy, the Who's big rock opera that I'm sure most people who are listening to this have heard of, Pete Townsend began work on a new rock opera called Lifehouse. And he was one of the original home demo guys. So he when he worked on a record, he didn't just like write the song and then bring it to the band. He demoed it all out. And He created this, uh, the demos for what was called Lifehouse, which was a sci-fi rock opera about a future in which the world is experiencing environmental tragedies and mishaps and people can't live outdoors. And so they plug into the grid which are these experience suits that allows them to interact with each other non-locally, sort of like our internet. And in this story, the Who are a band that are sort of living on the outskirts of this society, and they get caught up with this programmer who plugs the whole world into their concert, into their music, And by doing so, enlightens the planet. And along with this idea was, uh, at this time, Townsend was really into the idea that you could take the coordinates that related to a person's life, put them into a keyboard, and come out with a song that was the musical representation of them. And if you've heard the song Baba O'Reilly... The opening keyboard part, that sound is the life coordinates of Mayor Baba, who is the reason the song is called Baba O'Reilly, or half of the reason, the other half being Terry Riley, the minimalist composer. But Townsend fed Mayor Baba, who was his, or probably still is, his avatar spiritual teacher and was seen as the avatar of his age by some and was a huge inspiration to Pete Townsend throughout his life. Townsend took his coordinates, fed him into the computer, and that is an example of the kind of sound that would represent a person. And the idea is that if you had everyone's tone and you funneled them into a computer and it played at once, we'd all become enlightened and... You know, peace would reign, and that's the that's the end of Lifehouse. Of course, Lifehouse didn't happen. Pete Townsend tried to. Pre- it's sort of in the same way that uh, it's funny because that Good Vibrations is used as the breakdown music in Vanilla Sky because. Brian Wilson's difficulty in communicating his idea for Smile from 1967-68 to The Beach Boys was very similar to Pete Townsend's inability to communicate Lifehouse to his band. And that record eventually became Who's Next? After a series of chaotic live shows at a theater in Pickett's in London, definitely in in England, called The Young Vic, where where Townsend was trying to make Lifehouse actually happen, was trying to program people's information into these keyboards and trying to make this musical revolution actually happen. And at that time, basically that record became Who's Next and it was one of their biggest hits and it has songs like Bargain and Behind Blue Eyes and Won't Get Fooled Again on it. It's like the, the one of the quintessential classic rock records. And for better or for worse, that became The Who. And that was around the time when a young Cameron Crowe was just finding his way into Rolling Stone magazine, and like in that in the early '70s, and basically living the story that became almost famous. And if you look at his films, he I feel like does he write does he reference or have a Townsend song in every movie he's directed?
3: Uh, I I mean, probably. maybe not in singles,
4: but I feel like this probably like. Let My Love Open the Door or something like that is in singles. I bet the, there's a Townsend song in singles. If there isn't, there's someone who's influenced by Townsend. I feel like Townsend hangs over Cameron Crowe in like the best possible way, in a way that makes me like him, has always made me like him a lot.
3: Yeah, and this film, uh, you're right about that. And this film, Vanilla Sky references Pete Townsend specifically and Baba O'Reilly specifically when... Uh, At David Ames' birthday party, uh, where he first meets Sophia, uh, they get introduced, and then he gets uh, uh, taken away. He's, like, gonna find somewhere to put her coat, and then Cameron Diaz is there in his bed, and she's totally naked and, like, uh, barely covered up in blankets. Uh, And it's a great scene where she's, like, like, it's, you know, Cameron Diaz in bed invite like trying to invite invite you invite Tom Cruise away from everything but he's also like totally not interested and you can see like how this is Cameron Diaz's Julie Gianni's like last ditch attempt like well maybe if I'm naked he'll <laughs> he'll pay attention to me and he he leaves her and he goes back and finds Sophia looking at a smashed uh Gibson SG framed, and mm-hmm. it is it is meant to be a, a guitar, the guitar that Pete Townsend smashed. It's not the guitar, but well, he, he still, smashed
4: st- many. But yeah, it's not a true a truly Pete Townsend smashed guitar.
3: But it's, still, yeah. someone like stole it from the set.
4: Oh yeah, well now like, it's ha- it's the it's the fake Townsend smashed guitar from Vanilla Sky. So of course. Hey.
3: Yeah, it's cool. It's almost cooler than a yeah
4: real smashed guitar.
3: And then at the at the very end, when Tom Cruise has leapt off the building to end the dream and begin a real life, and his whole life is flashing before his eyes, and there's uh, just images from everything from the movie, from pop culture, from Tom Cruise's real life. There's like young. There's photos of young Tom Cruise thrown in there. And it's so fast that you—it it is impossible to take it all in at once. You have to pa- like pause it. And I have done this many a time when I first got the DVD, like pause it and gone through each frame individually. But one of the ones that you really get to take in is Pete Townsend rocking out on his guitar. It's
4: from Kids Are Alright, and it's... One of the most iconic performances they've... Is
3: him actually playing Baba O'Reilly? I, thi-
4: I think it's the end of Won't Get Fooled Again from a performance where they performed Baba O'Reilly. I may be wrong, but there's another reference to that same performance. If you notice in the scene in the nightclub, they have these lasers that they're using. Mm-hmm. And the, the laser pattern is the exact laser pattern that's featured very prominently in that re- at that recording for kid for the film Kids Are All Right that was shot at Shepperton Studios, I think it was the last time Keith Moon ever performed with the Who. And what's great is that the shot that they go to is the shot of Townsend. It's not just that he's rocking out, but he's doing his leap and landing on his knees. And it's like that. So we have David jumping and land, and so he's landing like Pete Townsend. It's and again, only a Who fan would do like. It- it's not just yeah it's one of those again one of those wonderful little winks that if you, and if you don't love. know
3: what we're talking about from vanilla sky or the kids are all right it's one of the moves that Marty McFly does <laughs> oh yeah while performing Johnny B good and he's like you know he's like playing the guitar behind his head he's doing like Jimi Hendrix moves and then and these were all decided by Michael J Fox he wanted to do like all the famous guitar moves from the famous like guitarists yet to come, and so he purposely does that Pete Townsend like dive and slide across the stage. Yeah, yes, yeah, so that's why I think that I mean even though Crow doesn't doesn't mention it specifically in his commentary, and he mentions so many of his influences on himself personally and on the film specifically, even though he doesn't mention this uh, uh, Lifehouse or the Who even. I think that it it is totally possible. I would not be surprised if he had listened to this, uh, you know, unproduced rock opera and, uh, you know, and, and was influenced by it.
4: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, not only did he listen to it, Pete Townsend spoke about it in the pages of Rolling Stone magazine when he was writing for Rolling Stone magazine. So, it's not a question of whether or not he's aware of it. It's one to me, the the real thing is, is he so aware of it that he doesn't want to say it? You know what I mean? It's like, is it so much a key that it's almost too personal to say? And we're revealing something and sorry, Cameron, but it's obvious. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the that's clip okay. that he uses at the end, that won't get fooled again clip, is from a song that's in Lifehouse. And that they talk about. And like, so he had to watch that movie and in that movie they talk like, yeah, it's just, it's so I'm not trying to, to, to contradict you here, but I, I I think that the idea that it's even a question of whether or not he's aware of it or has listened to it, that that's out the window. He knows, he's too, he knows too much and he, he's been too close to it for that to even be a possibility. But I think then that being the case, what's interesting. And I think you bring it up is Yes, he doesn't mention it at all. He talks about all these. He talks about Billy Wilder. He talks about the Beatles. He talks about
3: Howard Hawks. Howard and Hawks Truffaut.
4: And, radio, and Radiohead He and R.E.M. He talks about
3: everyone but the Who who are all over this. I think, and again, not being like a big Who fan, though, after this and after listening to uh, to the Lifehouse podcast, uh, like ex- experiments and uh, the radio play, which features uh, Kelly McDonald. And if you can get a hold of the Lifehouse radio play that aired on BBC Three, I highly recommend it. it, it it's really good. Um, that, like, at the very least, uh, you know, he is on the same, like, the whole great minds think alike, he's on the same level as pete townsend with regards to music like one of the songs in that is a song like called one note Mm -hmm. um about and that's like feeds into the whole theory how or the whole like concept of uh there's this character that's gonna like take like each person's individual like uh personality like each person creates their own kind of music their own notes and this uh uh like savior character is gonna to like take them all and combine them into one note and it's going to like that's the note that's going to be released and and save uh everybody and to think that in almost famous Early on, Jason Lee, who plays the lead singer of Stillwater, Mm -hmm. when uh, Patrick Fugit, the the stand-in for young Cameron Crowe, like he gets to first uh interview them and jason lee's just rambling on and it's in this great monologue where everything he's saying it sounds kind of silly but also very true and he talks about how like
1: some people have a hard time explaining rock and roll i don't think anyone can really explain rock and roll maybe pete townsend but that's okay Rock and roll is a lifestyle and a way of thinking. And it's not about money and popularity, although some money would be nice. But it's a voice that says, here I am, and fuck you if you can't understand me. And one of these people is going to save the world. And that means that rock and roll can save the world, all of us together. And the chicks are great. But... What it all comes down to is that thing. The indefinable thing when people catch something from your music. What I'm talking about is... Wait, what am I talking about? The buzz. The buzz. And the chicks, the whatever, is an offshoot of the buzz. Like you saying you like Fever Dog. That is the fucking buzz!
3: Rock music can save the world. And that's like that's literally what what Lifehouse is about on a very like literal level and an Almost Famous. It's, you know, on like a like a like a spiritual level. And at the end of Almost Famous, uh Fruza Balk, one of the the Band-Aids, not not a groupie, which is the whole point of the movie. You know, th- these are special souls, her and Kate Hudson as Penny Lane, the daughter of Kurt Russell, who appears in Vanilla Sky. Right.
4: Right and yeah, okay it, cool it, and in i believe in that that interview scene where he's talking about music can save us Somewhere in that, close to that, there's a line where someone says, "Well, that's that's the kind of stuff you can't say unless you're Pete Townsend, or only Pete Townsend can say that stuff and get away." Exactly.
3: With it. Yeah, that's that's a line Jason Lee says. I'm I'm pretty sure. Uh, I didn't watch. I didn't rewatch Almost Famous again in preparation for this. I I apologize. No,
4: no, you sounds like, uh, it's like you are. This is. I mean, you're.
3: This stuff is in your bones. So so it's that's <laughs> that's clear. At the end of uh, Fruzabalk Balk is talking about how like the the new girls the new generation of of groupies right not not band-aids girls that are like love that are there because they love the music right not just because they want to like sleep with someone who's famous but they want to like be near the person creating this music because they think they can inspire them to greater heights which is what they actually do and the new girls like they don't get it like they don't actually get it they don't understand what it's like to love like a stupid little song so much that like it it just like it, it captures like every fiber of your being or something like that i <laughs> again i didn't rewatch almost famous but but everyone should and i probably will too it's one of the films i own i own the untitled director's cut edition of this uh that like yes, like there's there is one song, there's one note that can like just move you to such great heights, uh, and that's kind of present throughout uh, Cameron Crowe's work. That everything combines together in one note, in uh, that speech, in Almost Famous, and in Vanilla Sky when he's falling off the building and seeing everything that he's ever like cared about, that's ever mattered to him, happening so fast. But it turns yeah.
4: out, unfortunately, that all he's doing is he's receiving the signal from the satellite that explodes at the end of Aloha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, and sorry. that's
3: the thing about Aloha, and I'm yeah, I was <laughs> working my way to that in... um In Elizabethtown of another film I think is unfairly judged. Maybe we could do a later episode on Elizabethtown at the, I feel like the
4: director's wall needs to do a Cameron Crowe
3: season. I I've been, I've been pushing for that for, for a while. That would be great. And I, I own all the DVDs, so it would be easy. Um, at the, at his father's funeral, um, a band, you know, like a local band. I mean, just like the family members, they're playing Free bird. I said it weird, but they're just playing Leonard Skinner's Free Bird." At and we, uh, at
4: which, which in which movie this is in
3: Elizabethtown in Elizabethtown. And uh, like a uh, a bird, like a paper mache pinata bird is supposed to fly across the hotel lobby where they're having the wake and it all goes wrong and the bird catches fire and the sprinklers go down, but the band they're so into it. They keep playing free bird and it's a beautiful moment of just like, uh, all the emotions of like a funeral, like all the, the, the bad emotions, you know, sadness and grief caught up with both like, uh, uh, like, like closure and and acceptance. And to me, it's all summed up in this shot by of Judy Greer holding her arms out uh just letting the the hotel sprinklers uh wash over her, listening to you know freebird go on and it's like at the end it just like it's just a bunch of notes all at once so fast that it seems like it's it's gonna coalesce into one thing like the end of Baba O'Reilly, which
0: mm-hmm.
3: is an amazing. An amazing ending with the violin and 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 everything else, and then in at the end of Aloha, which is a whole wonderful mess of a film. Oh boy! Which yeah. which ends and there's there's a lot of good stuff in the film, and there's so much that doesn't work. And yeah, and it's a romantic comedy drama about Bradley Cooper wooing. Emma Stone uh, that ends with him having to stop Bill Murray from putting nuclear weapons in space <laughs> and being the only privates being the only person to control like nuclear weapons in space and he destroys this satellite that Bill Murray is uh, launching by overloading it with all the sounds of culture of like every like musical note he sends it up to the satellite and it overloads this weapon of war and destruction and destroys it and you know and it's it, it's like the ultimate uh, uh, like hippie putting a flower in the barrel of a rifle. Yeah, it's this beautiful moment <laughs> that in itself, in itself is wonderful, but doesn't work, doesn't work in a romantic comedy. That's insane. Who knows? But who knows? Maybe
4: in the future it'll look. I mean, it's one of those things that, like, the more I think about it, that's a film that I'm feeling like I'll never. The things that I don't like about it, I'll never love, I don't think. But the things that I love about it eventually, I think, will outlast the things that bother me about it. Because the things that I love about it are so good. It's just, oh. Yeah, it's uh, it it brings up it's well. We're here to talk about Vanilla Sky, but I did want us to really get into the larger Cameron Crowe, and you're absolutely right. Um, I I, I yeah. need to see Elizabeth Town. now. Is my, there... my my
3: overall uh, like thesis being that there are so like so many different things of uh, pop culture of music and movies coming together so so excuse me so quickly and so closely. That they almost you you're so expecting them to fuse together as one. and in that that like final moment, open your eyes, arelos ojos, and one note, yeah. yeah.
4: See me, feel me, touch me, heal me, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm really glad we gave the Townsend connection to Cameron Crowe that much attention because now I feel really even more excited to actually dig into this film at about an hour and 20 minutes into this podcast <laughs> get ready folks it's just going to be a big one you know I've been listening to this guy talk on the director's wall for uh, for too long I just just I knew we were going to have a great conversation so can we just walk through the film a little bit would you walk through sure with please. Me for a second so first of all I just want to point out the naming in this in the film is great. In uh, in Open Your Eyes, they ch- they changed all the names. They kept a lot of I mean, other than Sophia, who is Penelope Cruz reprising her role. Everyone else has a different name in the film. the The main character in Abre los ojos is uh, is Caesar, or Caesar Caesar. So. I just want to go through some of the clever stuff that's in the names here, and then you can tell me if you have any others. But David Ames, with him being AA and the director of uh, Open Your Eyes being an AA, and this being a cover, it's very, to me, that seems like, oh, okay, so we're giving him this name, David, which is also King David, whatever. I I don't want to put too much onto that, but the AA in Ames... Uh, also, I could see them playing with it. He's also a mess, but mostly I think it's clever with the Ames <laughs> thing. And then Sophia stays Sophia, but she becomes Sophia Serrano. That's
3: right. I'm IMDb does not list the her full name for "Open Your Eyes."
4: No one, but there, it, no it one in it
3: as a is a last name. Yeah, in- it, but it is definitely not uh, Serrano. Got it. So.
4: Whenever I hear the name Julie Gianni, I can't help but think of Giuliani.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: Which is just villain casting. Oh, and also there's a whole thing of Cameron Cameron and Cruz Cruz. We've got Tom Cruise and Penelope Cruz and Cameron Diaz and Cameron Crowe. This whole double... The fact that there's a film about doubles and then we have these doubles who are the stars, that's more sync thinking than like Intentional. I'm sure that that was just a fun thing that they laughed about on the set. But the yeah, fact that it, Kurt Russell is named McCabe, which is the name of a very famous acoustic guitar store in L.A. And the idea, like the sort of the Townsend smashing the guitar, Tom Cruise as a rock star. And so who he's hanging out with, if we're thinking along the musical lines, he's hanging out with Jackson Brown or James Taylor or one of these crunchy acoustic guys, that's who McCabe is. (laughs) And to me, the fact that he chose the name McCabe for him, again, if you're that much into music and you're living in LA and you're making up names anyway and you're having fun with it, then it's kind of perfect that he is McCabe. And the other one, there's all the Beatles stuff. Johnny Galecki plays a guy named Peter Brown, who is... Uh, name-checked in Ballad of John and Yoko when he says Peter Brown called to say you can make it okay. Oh, they can get married yeah. in Gibraltar near Spain. And so since, again, he's, ref- he's made a big Beatles reference, here we have a character named Peter Brown. Uh, I Those are the only ones that I really honed in on, although I bet if I... this I'm just looking at the main cast. I bet if we dug in a little bit more... There might be some other jokes because I feel like he's having fun with it uh, as he should. So.
3: Yeah, th- there's a lot of great character names in this. Like you have to say both names. You have to say David Ames. You have to say Julie Gianni. Uh, Tilda Benny Swinton's the dog. Benny the dog. Just like Benny. Benny the dog. Uh, it, Tilda are, you, Swinton's character, are you doing
4: it, uh, are you doing Nancy Wilson? <laughs> no, I was
3: uh, close. I, that, that was my Noah Taylor impression. Oh,
4: okay.
3: <laughs> There's an explanation for all this, David. <laughs> that
4: was very good. Very good.
3: Oh, thank you. Oh, Tillis Win's character is called Rebecca Dearborn. Uh, 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 Timothy Spall is playing a character called Thomas Tip. Like, the, the, yeah. these, these are just great uh, Great. Great character names. and Crow is someone that in vanilla Sky, especially, but throughout his whole films. And if he's done a commentary, I've listened to it, but it's been years since I've listened to it. So I can't remember the specifics in like the the later films, like Elizabeth Town or Aloha, but like an almost famous, Something that a friend of mine, who was so into the the music of that a uh, era, the late sixties, early seventies, Led Zeppelin, especially, pointed out to like all of us that were watching the film, and we're all like, uh, you know, fifteen at the time. Uh, there's something about where uh, I, I I'm pretty like it has to be Led Zeppelin, but like uh, at a, when when they go to New York and there's a character played by Jay Jay Baruchel who is freaking out because he just got Led Zeppelin to like sign his shirt, and he's freaking out. He's like, "This is the pen! Like, they, they touch this pen! They touch this pen!" And he turns around, and the back of his shirt says something like, "Where's the bridge?" And it's a reference to, like, a just like a, a I don't know if it's a bootleg recording or if it's just. A, like Robert Plant, like muttering something at the end of a song uh, that you can only catch if you're really paying attention to, and that's like written on the back of his character's shirt. Like, Crow puts those kind of references in his films, and if you catch it, great, and if you don't, that's okay.
4: That's actually a reference to the song The Crunge from houses Yes, as a whole. yes,
3: that's it, that's I'm it. I'm just trying to find the bridge. Has
0: anybody seen the bridge? Please, Have you seen the bridge? I have seen the bridge.
2: Why's that confounded bridge?
4: <laughs> okay, now we really are going to talk about the film. <laughs> okay. So it starts with a massive... Like in the first 30 seconds of the film, you're getting a very, to me, one-to-one Rosemary's Baby uh, quote, because you have this this flying, this aerial shot coming into New York and landing on the Dakota, which is basically what happens at the beginning of Rosemary's Baby. And people who... Follow the history of that time and the sort of the synchronicities that surround Rosemary's baby and John Lennon and the Beatles and Mia Farrow and Charles Manson. And like, it's all wrapped up together. There's just a soup of synchronicity. So to me, just from that very opening again, for someone who is so conscious of investing his films with cultural references that are going to be, visible to those who are aware of them and invisible to those who aren't. And so that is such a, it, that's a huge Rosetta stone for understanding. If you want to understand a certain strand of thinking around the culture of the late sixties and going into the seventies and what, what happened and what that led to, to now you could A good entry point would be the Dakota and everything it relates to culturally. So I think it's just amazing that first of all, he uses it, and then he's not able to use it at all. It remains a locked mystery box. But even just not having access to it as a filmmaker, he completely grabbed it and put it at the center of his film. So... I promise you folks we're not going to talk about every moment in the film this intensely,
3: but did you recognize that? Uh yeah, I um even before I knew I had not seen Rosemary's Baby when I watched this film and I watched it in theaters, oh, I don't know, like four times maybe. I was like forcing people to watch this film. Uh, I think about how I was in high school and college about movies. I'm so thankful that anyone was ever my friend. So uh, uh, special thanks right now to everybody who knew me from 1999 to 2005. Uh, they still can't yeah, eat on... vanilla ice cream or look up. Mm-hmm. Or look at Monet.
4: <laughs> <laughs> they just can't look so... at the sky. They have to spend their lives looking down. They're frightened. of. The... If I look up, I might yeah. have to watch this movie again. Okay. Sorry, folks. <laughs> For, for bringing this up for you, but we're doing it. Yeah. Well, let me just jump in here and you can catch it. You can catch it as you do. Please. So the other thing that we're going to have to confront at the very, very beginning of this movie is 9-11. It's just, it's so baked into the cake in a way that feels like not anything that they wanted, but it's just there. It came out in... in December of 2001. So they were working on this and preparing it all in that time. And then, of course, you know, you have, well, it starts off on a crisp fall morning. He's describing this crisp fall morning in New York City. And in 2001, if a film comes out that talks about a crisp fall morning in New York City, that's peaceful and, you know, it you can't and then it becomes a ghost city it can't help but put you, just like uh, if you know what's going on, if you know the history of the Dakota, you can't look at that initial shot of the Dakota and not think of everything that comes with it. John Lennon got killed right out front. Exactly, Uh, yeah. And then just like that, you can't hear him talk about a crisp fall morning in New York City in 2001 and not think about what is about to happen to everyone there. And to the whole world. And it's it doesn't happen in this movie, but it immediately sets me up in a way of like, I don't know, it's like like foreboding reminiscence. You know, it's like remembering the last time you spent with a loved one who died suddenly. And you're like, like that moment, all of a sudden, like, it's a really sweet moment. It's also a very terrifying moment. So... Uh, yeah, I, immediately this movie has me is just like grabbing me. Plus it gives you the two things a Tom Cruise film needs to give you uh him with his shirt off and him running furiously in the first 5 minutes. Check and check, Cameron Crowe and producer Tom Cruise.
3: Exac exactly. It's <laughs> it's like the um it's like the Hitchcock cameo. Yeah uh as he made more and more films and people became more and more aware of it he put it earlier in the films so that way we could just get it over with until finally north by northwest where he shows up at the end of the credit sequence and then okay you saw you saw what you were looking for now let's get on with the movie okay like you saw tom cruise with a shirt off you saw him running now let's get on with the movie um yeah and that film Uh, I'm sorry, that scene, because this was in 2001 when computers were CGI was just really like taking the hold of every conceivable aspect of special effects. It was a big deal that Tom Cruise running through an empty Times Square was done. No CGI, no special effects. They just asked the city of New York can we shut down times square and they said you can do it early on the sunday morning and so they did and it's both quite simple and quite amazing
4: yeah yeah that's it's one of several big power moves from tom cruise in this movie we'll get to we'll get to others now i couldn't help because i i so i wa- i rewatched vanilla sky then i watched Abre los ojos. Then I watched Aloha. Then I watched the Vanilla Sky with the commentary. And so I couldn't help but notice that this film Vanilla Sky is pre-referencing Aloha. The hat that he wears to demonstrate how freewheeling he is in his first meeting with the seven dwarves Mm -hmm. is very similar to the hat that Bradley Cooper gives Emma Stone as a joke in one of the romantic comedy turns, the boy loses girl beat in, uh, in Aloha. Or do you huh. remember that?
3: I, I do not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, the, the things I remember about Aloha, I remember quite well, but I don't remember that, which is a, a shame because I do, I do, I believe own that DVD. So I'll it's okay. have to, it's okay. I'll have to give it another watch. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, but,
4: but, uh, the hat thing though, I think that speaks to an aesthetic. I bet people who have partied with Cameron Crow are like when he gets when he really gets going, he likes to put on goofy hats and there's he has a certain <laughs> style he likes. They look like lampshades. He's like he, they're literally lampshade hats. It's like anyway, neither here nor there and probably testing the patience of listeners who have not watched Aloha, which is probably all of you, although maybe we'll encourage others to check it out. I'm sort of going through just like beats and things that I thought were really interesting. Feel free as we go through the movie to to jump in if there are, uh, are points that excited you. I got excited when I saw Michael Shannon show up as uh, the uh, sort of aggressive security guard.
3: Uh, me too, because uh, though I've seen this film front to back, uh, I don't know, like, I'm really not exaggerating, but like 20 times at least. <laughs> I have not seen it so recently that I knew that Michael Shannon was in it. Um, and so I was excited to watch it again and be like, oh, like, is that Mike? Yeah, that is Michael Shannon. And of course, in 2001, I would not have recognized the guy who is really excited to go to WrestleMania from Groundhog Day. Uh, but now that, you know, Michael Shannon has really broken out in his own way uh I'm like okay well that that's <laughs> like that's great that's so cool that he's in it's so cool that he's in this movie and it again it's like cameron crowe and the casting director gale levin just stacked this film with amazing performers top to bottom uh yeah so i, I was really excited to see michael shannon in this movie and i've totally forgot that um uh, yeah, Johnny Galicki had a very small part in uh, in this movie at the beginning.
4: Yeah, in, uh, in the commentary, Cameron Crowe makes a point of singling out Michael Shannon as someone who he was certainly aware of as a big deal. But he also makes a point of pointing out W. Earl Brown, who's one of my uh, favorite character actors and has been a guest on my show, Radio 8 Ball. You, you might know him from Deadwood. He plays one of... Uh, Swearingen's henchman, and that, but he played, but but Crow does not mention Johnny Galecki. He just sort of goes by. He doesn't. So, but it could be like the the love of Pete Townsend. Maybe he's so excited about Johnny Galecki being in his movie <laughs> that he doesn't want to spoil it for us by pointing it out. Uh But yeah, that that's uh, it's it's it also speaks to that idea of it being a cover. It's the kind of thing that. When I first looked at it, it kind of annoyed me. It's like, oh well, the initial film, it's it's really kind of adorable. It's all he's fancy, but he's not that fan. He's not Tom Cruise fancy. He's not shut down uh, Times Square fancy and Steven Spielberg showing up at by party fancy. TVs going into the floor fancy. He's like a, he lives in a kind of nice apartment with some you know, some neon stuff on the wall. <laughs> I mean, it's not... and I feel like the translation from one to the other is really drastic. Like the, the amount of money and power and stardom that vanilla sky is compared to the original is kind of like a Led Zeppelin cover of a Willie Dixon blues song. Like, but I kind of... But when I think of it like that, then I'm like, okay, well, this is kind of great. That's what you do with a cover—you blow it out. You're like even the guy playing the marimbas played on 500 other songs, and it's like that guy's playing the marimbas. Ah, oh, yeah, you know, and that's Michael Shannon. He's playing the little marimba part over on the side, and you're like, whoa! I had no idea it was that guy. And the film is full of them. Yes,
3: totally. I um, I I watched uh, Ebert and Roper's uh, review of. Vanilla Sky before uh before we got on air and one thing Richard Roper mentions is that uh, open your eyes a Los Ojos is like the acoustic version and this vanilla sky is like the fully orchestrated version and i find that a, a very a very astute and accurate description of the two films i mean just because of like you know budget wise you get an american back to movie with tom cruise you have so much more money that can go into it so you can shut down Times square and you can film the outside of the dakota and you can put in all these special effects and green screen shots and so it just feels it feels like the bigger version which is one thing i think that uh, puts a lot of people off if they know about open your eyes yeah And I mean, it's it's true for a lot of movies. Yes, the original is the better version. Let the right one in is the one you should watch and not let me in for, you know, for uh, angsty teen vampire or adolescent vampire movies. The original Um, Little
4: Shop of Horrors you should watch instead of the musical. Well, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I,
3: I think so, but, you know, not everyone. It's been a while since I've seen yeah. the, uh, the very, very original. Uh, I, I, actually,
4: I think that's, an um, to me, that's maybe a more appropriate analogy because it's sort of like they really are two... Di- One is so much bigger and blown out than the other that they really are two different things. And the original Little Shop of Horrors is... A, Highly recommend, I can't, maybe we should do an episode about that on this podcast sometime. It's my mom's <laughs> favorite movie when I was growing up. It was her favorite movie. And I that just, I think that colored my view of movies from a very early age. But when the other one came out, the only thing that was a bummer was that when you say Little Shop of Horrors, you now have to qualify and you can't just mention it as like this cool indie reference, which it was the whole time I was growing up. Whenever I told grown ups that I liked that film, I always got a weird look out of them, you know. What's your favorite yeah.
3: movie? Little Shop of Horrors? <laughs> you mean with Jack Nicholson? Yeah. <laughs> and there's, um, yeah, and to this being a cover of uh, of Open Your Eyes, Abre los Ojos, there's uh, dialogue that is exactly from the original film. There's shots that are exactly from the original yeah. film. Yep. And amazing shots and like yeah, of course it makes sense if you're doing a remake and you're at the 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 club scene and the whole array of laser lights spills out over the people at the club and they throw up their arms and put their arms through the light and there's a sea of hands like swimming above the light like you're gonna put that in your movie as well and it's it's a great scene in both movies uh, it's just you know who you're hearing it from the tone the style is totally different and one is not necessarily better than the other it's just two different two different versions
4: you know I, I know we're talking about it as a cover and he talks about it as a cover but if we're thinking about lifehouse and the who and as like like I was saying the one the one of the reasons we have, I think that Lifehouse has stayed alive is because Pete Townsend demos all of his stuff and that found its way onto bootlegs. And so people became fans of the material that wasn't on Who's Next because of that. And I think that's one of the things about being a Who fan is that you really enjoy the the demos and you like the band versions. And this, in a way, like you we were talking about the... Who who was it? Was it Siskel or Ebert or Roper or who said the uh, uh, Roper said Roper that, compared uh, it to uh, an yeah. acoustic version, the McCabe's version, and the Roxy version. But uh, it's but for me, you could also say that it's like Open Your Eyes is like the demo version to this being the full the Who version. Yeah,
3: I totally I totally see it. Um, yeah, I I hadn't seen. Abre los Ojos until after I watched uh, Vanilla Sky. I don't think it got even maybe put out on DVD in America until after Vanilla Sky. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I mean, I, I love Vanilla Sky more. Oh yeah. For so many reasons, but I don't, I mean, like, do I think it's better? Like, it means more to me. It's the one I would tell people to watch, but Open Your Eyes is, like, it's its own thing. I'm not gonna say, like, it's, a uh, you know, it, it it's the bad version of this story. It's, uh, it's, it's its own thing. It's, like, you know, yeah, finding the demo tape. It's, like, watching the original version of, a Little Shop of Horrors or watching, um, you know, like an old silent movie that gets referenced throughout so many different movies, like finally watching uh, The Crowd by King Vidor. And there's a shot of uh, this guy working at his desk in this endless sea of desks, which then gets referenced by Billy Wilder in the apartment in 1960 and then that gets referenced by cameron crowe in jerry Maguire in 1996
4: and i think somewhere in between there's terry gilliam and there's the coen brothers and probably Yeah. yeah
3: yeah everyone wants to do their everyone wishes they had thought of it first and so the most they can do is their own version of it and you know it's uh it's just like a cover. It works for some people. You like, you know, this band's cover of whatever song, like that's cool. If you like the original, that's, that's cool too.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, bringing it back to it, there's, I have one, I think one last really big synchronicity that I noticed in this that has to do with the who, but I think we, there's, we're not, People don't think that that we're even, we may not even be halfway through this. This is like, I'm looking at my notes. There's still a lot to cover. But just to get through the film here, there's a big synchronicity in in the commentary track. And I want you to hang with me through it. And I want you to, like, this is the thing about a big synchronicity. It's a very personal thing. If it's corroborated, maybe it has meaning. If it's not corroborated, it still has meaning to you. But maybe it's not worth thinking too much about. So you ready?
3: Okay, let's do
4: it. So, so I'm happy that you've wa- you've watched it with the commentary since so it was the first commentary you you watched. So you know you know the part where <clears throat> where Cameron Crowe is talking about just the cool synchronicity that happened for them on the set, the way that Cameron Diaz's eyes matched the light blue car that Tom Cruise gets into, and then she drives off a bridge and sets off the, the tragedy of this film. hmm Yeah.
0: How did it go with our moth girl? Did she turn into a butterfly for you?
2: The amazing thing about yes, Cameron Diaz in that car is how her eyes link up with the color of that Buick Skylark. Oh, by the way, you were yep. And it was intentional, but it was a surprise when we finally saw the two of them linked because we kind of put the car together before Cameron Diaz had come to the into the country she was working in Italy. She came in, she sat in that car and it was haunting because her eyes are the same color as that car. And the two of them together became a very lonely and dangerous image. And that is Julie Gianni.
1: You just never seem to be there for your friends until they've already given up on you.
2: David Ames was a hard name to come up with, by the way, David Ames. But in the end, it, 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 it came and it was the kind of name that you had to say both, David Ames. Julia Gianni, instantly, that felt like Cameron Diaz's character. This scene is really the crux of David Ames' life. And it is how much are you going to stay with that little decision that you make as you're leaving the house and you say, you know what? I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be the best version of myself. And then, boom, you're tested immediately. And this scene is about that little voice inside that that you shouldn't listen to, that we often do listen to, that says, you know, just run one more emotional red light. Nobody's going to catch you. <laughs> and suddenly we have David Ames in the car. (laughs) I fall apart. That's our composition, isn't it?
1: We wrote that song.
2: We wrote that song.
1: No one knows what it's like
0: to be the bad man
4: so he makes a big point of that. And then as they're driving, he and Nancy Wilson are talking and she's playing guitar throughout this. And she starts playing the chords, these chords to a song. It's the E minor sus chord that she's playing. And then she says, this is the song we wrote, which plays in the film. But even before she said that, I immediately had the reaction that Cameron Crowe was having, which stopped him, which is that those chords played just on acoustic guitar and not the way they are in the song that's in the film, are the opening chords to Behind Blue Eyes from Lifehouse. And they were just talking about Blue Eyes. And I was this moment of very... Again, it's one of these areas where he never talks about the who in all of this, except mentioning the and guitar and that getting stolen, but never mentions the who or Lifehouse. But even in the accidental synchronicities, now that wasn't planned at all, but it's just an obvious thing like, oh, well, that's odd. You know, talking about Blue Eyes, then they have, then she plays the chords from the beginning of the song. What do you make of that? AJ, am I just nuts or? I mean, I am nuts. <laughs> But does that make any sense, or is this just the ravings of a madman? And should uh, I just jump off of the building?
3: Uh, yes to all. Uh, <laughs> it's, okay. It's Yeah, I, I, I don't remember the, the, the music that, that Nancy Wilson played. You know uh, the opening chords to be Behind Blue
4: Eyes, because they're playing I under do. us right
3: now. You know,
4: and then... <laughs> I'll grab the clip from the film, and it'll be in here, and it'll just be sort of like, okay, you know, I mean, again, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't matter unless you're a Who fan who's obsessed with finding the Who, the Whoishness in his in Cameron Crowe's films, but uh, or maybe just the Whoishness in everything, but particularly in Cameron Crowe's films. So anyway, we will move on from that. Uh, that unpleasantness of that car crash unless you want to talk about the car crash
3: uh just that it's i mean it's a really intense uh car crash uh drives off a bridge and the silence that follows it like everything kind of kills out of the soundtrack in the very distance there's people running towards the car crash makes it feel especially real and you feel like Yeah, this is the kind of car accident that could have brutally maimed someone and killed someone else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very hard moment in the movie, especially coming after Cameron Diaz's performance in the car. She gives a really, really good emotional performance as the, you know, jilted Julie Gianni.
4: She definitely I feel like has the the most sort of heavy lifting acting role in the film, I mean other than Cruz, I guess, but there's just something again, thinking about the translation from the original film to this one, like I'm not sure if I think that Penelope Cruz is better than the actress who played her part in the original film. Who was that again? <laughs> I believe that
3: was uh. Penelope Cruz.
4: Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's also part of the cover aspect. You bring someone from the original band into your band, like the, the I guess, the female vocalist from the original band. Like, there's a way... So they brought the authenticity of the, re, of the original singer, and that's cool. But then part of what's also fun is watching what it's like, the differences between Cameron Diaz and the very fine actress who played the same character in the original film but when you see cameron diaz play the exact same role and hit all the exact same beats almost beyond what she adds to it or then and then she adds certain beats or the film adds some to it but a lot of times she's playing the exact same beat and then you're like oh yeah cameron crowe is Jimi hendrix like is is one of those people? I mean, did I say Cameron Crow? Cameron Diaz is is like the great guitarist. You come, you get to bring in to play a lead that would never be played by the 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 singer's original band. It's actually as I'm describing it, I'm getting a little bit angrier at the film because I kind of hate that dynamic when uh, you you sort of mine when a popular band mines a less popular band for all of its good stuff. But uh, I'm gonna trust that this was all respectful. Yeah. yeah. So
3: the the way this movie came about is that um, Tom Cruise had the rights to the like American remake of Open Your Eyes, and that he had been like you know a- a approached that there were like a lot of foreign films that he was uh, had been approached to like do the American remake of. But open your eyes was the one he felt was most uh, suitable for an American remake because the the story the themes were universal. So he wasn't you know he wouldn't be starring in the film that totally like you know upended the the culture of you know uh, of of uh, of the country that originated the film and having worked with recently with Cameron Crow on Jerry Maguire, though I guess by this point it wasn't recent. They made Jerry Maguire in 96. And in between then, uh, Tom Cruise spent, I don't know, infinity years working on Eyes Wide Shut with Kubrick. And so in 99, he has Eyes Wide Shut and uh, Magnolia from Paul Thomas Anderson. Just like amazing double whammy performance. And those are really Tom Cruise, like, using all his acting chops. Like, Tom Cruise is, like, handsome A-list movie star. But he's also an incredible actor. But he's also a stealth actor because he's so good-looking. Someone like Redford in the 70s where you have to, like, almost catch him acting. And it's just there in his eyes and subtle expressions but he is really like into these characters that he's playing. And then in 2000 he does Mission Impossible 2, which I is like I feel like unfairly maligned in the Mission Impossible can franchise. Can I can I
4: can I jump in here for a second? All sure. I want to say is that at the time being still somewhat of a young actor and looking at films that way. That was the beginning of Tom Cruise movie star stuntman. Cause the preview for that is the scene, the scene with him climbing that rock face and then throwing <clears throat> away the, the sunglasses. And that was to me, like the, the, we were talking about those first two films or not first two, but the eyes, but eyes wide shut and Magnolia were, a sort of watershed because I'd always, I've always liked Tom Cruise from Risky Business, from Taps. I remember i being blown away by him in Taps and everyone beautiful in my man. middle school doing that
0: beautiful. Fucking beautiful
4: thing that he did, that he did in that, like he just always had that zeitgeisty quality. But my point here is I know Mission Impossible 2 gets a bad rap, but it was so fucking cool. And Tom Cruise was so fucking cool in it in a way that annoyed people like he could be so cool that if you weren't confident, it made you hate him. But when he was climbing that rock face and throwing away those sunglasses coming off of Magnolia, it, it, Mission Impossible 2 was very cool. It may not have held up, but it was fucking awesome.
3: Yeah, because he, he's got the, it's an action movie like Mission Impossible 1, you know, Brian De Palma co-scripted by Robert Town and David Kep, you know, Good move, like the flinky, good move.
4: Very Beatty-esque like, on his part. Like, put together yeah. the fucking awesome team and let them make you look great.
3: Go. I love it. Yeah. It's I, I love this movie. I, I love Mission Impossible 1. It's amazing. And Mission Impossible 2, it's like the flip side, like, you know, pure action, but it's John Woo action. So there are doves flying around everywhere. And Tom Cruise has like, long hair and the sunglasses and he's like flying off of a motorcycle. And it's, if you've seen John Woo movies, like it all, like his actual, like Hong Kong movies, uh, it it makes, or Taiwan, Hong Kong. I Um, forgot now. Oh no. If you watch his like original, his pre Hollywood movies, uh, it all like makes sense. And then, so that's, like, Tom Cruise putting, like, a foot back into, like, action star Tom, you know, action star Tom Cruise. And then after that, Vanilla Sky, where he's back to actor Tom Cruise. And it doesn't seem like that. actor. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that. Because what he's doing is he's playing on your perception of the Tom Cruise persona, which is... Again, I think something that puts people off about this movie is that it starts out with, it's about this handsome guy who's, you know, exceedingly wealthy and just hooks up with beautiful women. And like uh, in, you know, in the first 20 minutes, I feel like you lose a lot of people are like, well, why should I? Care about this guy who has everything. Hold on, hold already.
4: Got to back up here. I mean, isn't that basically again? You said talking about checking off the Tom Cruise boxes. Sort of arrogant Tom Cruise at the in the first twenty minutes of our movie. Isn't that just a Tom Cruise movie?
3: It is. Like that's that's J. McGuire. <laughs> that's every. Like, also, <laughs> yeah.
4: It's Color of Money. It's uh uh. Is it Risky Business? Uh, I mean, maybe he's you know, a, little bit, he's a little bit more awkward version, you know. Uh, definitely, um, it's Top Gun. It's, I mean, isn't he an arrogant vampire in interview with a vampire? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, an arrogant vampire. He's there, uh, t- born on the 4th of July, arrogant Tom Cruise. I mean, that's that's the Tom Cruise brand. Uh, which uh, the, the one with the uh, Rain Man, it's all that's Tom. I'm sorry. If you're going to a Tom Cruise movie and walking out in the first 20
3: minutes because he's an asshole, you're never going to see the end of a Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, and that that's a big like uh, complaint that I heard of, uh, from people about this movie. Well, then you don't is, like Tom
4: Cruise movies. Come on. That's, yeah, that's...
3: Um, but like, but you should I'm stick sorry. with it because Tom <laughs> yeah. Cruise is a great actor. He really is a great actor. He is right, and but his acting. Is so like it's so subtle, and he does in this movie this move that he that he does in uh, uh, the only specific I can think of right now is an eyes wide shut, where he is like he's confident and yeah you know, charming, but then he's totally thrown off balance and suddenly becomes very unsure of himself and his surroundings. And he looks out of the side uh, of his eyes first. And then he slightly turns his head with his mouth like slightly open and confused. And he does that in the car with Cameron Diaz when she says, when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not. And he looks at her out with his side eye first and then slowly turns his head and he does the same thing in Eyes Wide Shut when Lily Sobieski uh, whispers something into his ear. And if you're watching the film, you don't hear what it is. But if you're watching it with subtitles, like I do, just out, out of habit, I, I do this now, uh, what she says turns up on uh, the subtitles. And it's so, like, kind of out of the context for the scene that him doing this side-eye and this confused slow head turn makes the whole scene seem kind of uh kind of eerie and he's totally thrown off balance and uh it it's a move he does in movies. You just have to like watch out for it. It's a great it's a great like Tom Cruise Move that he pulls off very well. It's funny because when
4: you're saying that it's something he only does in those two films, I was wondering if it might just be an allergic reaction to wearing a mask because <laughs> I, I I did think that the idea that he went from eyes wide shut to a movie that features him wearing another awkward mask, or not awkward, but sort of beautifully poetic and haunting mask might be, like, in with distance, it doesn't ring as such a... It, the, the bells aren't ringing so close to each other. I remember at the time, that was maybe... It didn't make me not like the movie, but I think it maybe distracted me a, enough from it. But yeah, I guess what I wanted to ask you was, were you feeling the eyes wide shut? Like, it feels like a very... Between the the haunted New York... Thing at the beginning and the repetition of the mask and it being Tom Cruise in you know 99, 2000 all around the same time or let's just call it millennial Tom Cruise oh, it totally... the, the, the two films seem very <laughs> merged
3: yeah. yeah it totally makes sense um, and Um it, it, it makes sense as like a follow up even though Mission Impossible 2 comes between these films uh it just feels like Vanilla Sky is like a flip side of Eyes Wide Shut, where Tom Cruise is a seemingly handsome, confident, rich New York uh, you know New York doctor, a social person, moving about through his life with his eyes wide shut closed, and so he's uh, the the night that we follow him on. Is like him, you know, experiencing a dream seeming like he's realizing that uh, he's experiencing a dream or is uh, his life outside of that night uh, where he ends up at, you know, the weird non-sexy orgy house, is his life outside of that a dream or was that the dream or do dreams play any part of it at all because this... Or is the whole thing a dream? Because the streets in New York, if you've ever been to New York, are not that narrow. And nothing ever seems quite right because it was all shot on sound stages in London. And that's totally on purpose. And he wears a mask, a very plain... Well, part of it is plain, but then it's done up with very, like, Baroque beads on top. And now he's in Vanilla Sky where he's wearing a mask that's like totally plain and white but very eerie still even though it's just like a mask it's a very bland like Halloween Michael Myers-esque type mask like of his own face but it seems it's very weird uh, very eerie and throughout vanilla sky people are telling him to wake up and that he's living the dream after he picks up jason lee at the very beginning and they're almost in the car accident jason lee says like we almost died and you know what's fucked up your life flashed before my eyes yeah, that's a great line and when <laughs> when they meet uh when they meet up again and Jason Lee's brought Sophia to his birthday party it's like hey how are you doing Tom Cruise says live in the dream live in the dream and people keep telling him to wake up and something that Cameron Crowe said someone mentioned at a test screening or a festival screening is that well the whole thing was a dream because David Ames's life before the car accident was a dream that was what people dream about being you know, this rich, uh, this confident, well, this yeah, successful. Tom <laughs> yeah, he's Tom Cruise. He's the the version you think of when you think of what Tom Cruise is doing. Which, again, I think is what puts some people off. You're like, well, I'm like, I'm just watching Tom Cruise, just like being his like handsome self, getting all these you know beautiful women and hanging out with beautiful people, listening to good music, and having Pete Townsend smashed up guitar on his wall, uh, and
4: also. In reality, having Steven Spielberg just be on the set to talk with you about Minority Report based upon a Philip K. Dick book, which is this is also very in the realm of Philip K. Dick and a lot of the film, the kind of films that were happening in that era that you're talking about. We're connected to that. And then just having Steven Spielberg be on the set and be able to show up in your movie with your Cameron Crowe movie at a party scene because he happens to be there. And you're Tom Cruise and you can shut down New York City on a Sunday morning. And that's all true. I think that's what makes it again as I come back and look at it now it really does Cameron Crowe does a really good job with this of both doing his cover of Open Your Eyes, but also creating, doing what a, it's the singer, not the song, is a line from a, a Who song, but it's also, I think, from earlier songs, but it's in the the song Joined Together, which was going to be on Lifehouse. And that idea that, yeah, the song is great, but the fact that it's Mick Jagger singing it Makes it something else because Mick Jagger is Mick Jagger, and sorry, that's something that's unique that makes us want to look at Mick Jagger. And Tom Cruise at that time had that like, you just want to see him. And also, it's annoying. You like certain people just are always going to rebel at that. But and even I was, I might have been. But now going back and looking at it, it's like, wow, Cameron Crowe, you did a really good job because you used all of the Cruesian elements for your film in a way. That now feels very, I don't know, like, I'm glad it was documented. Uh,
3: Something, so uh, before we jumped on there, I watched uh, an old Siskel and Ebert episode, specifically about Tom Cruise, called The Star Next Door, that they taped in 1990. It's available on SiskelandEbert.org. I know no one affiliated with this website. It's just an amazing website where you can watch old Siskel and Ebert episodes. And in that episode, uh, but they like days of thunder was Tom Cruise's latest film. They talk about how he, it, I forgot who's, who said it, but that he is like the younger brother that we all like wish we had, or we all feel like we have uh, whether you're a boy or a girl, like Tom Cruise feels like your younger brother. And I've, feel like that kind of just captures perfectly the attitude people have towards him where like you feel like very close to him, but you're also like kind of annoyed by him because it's your younger sibling doing all this great stuff. You know, this, your younger sibling having the success or like having the great talent. You're like, well, I'm really proud. I'm really excited, but I'm also kind of annoyed that it's you and not me that's doing this. And that's, feels like i feel like that's an accurate description of tom cruise's persona and then used you know to to the nth degree here in vanilla sky
4: yeah yeah i i Um, it's funny i've never thought of him as my younger brother but it's i see see what you mean i don't know what what do i think of i just god it's weird i don't know i don't know what i think about i i I know that I think Tom Cruise is great, but if I was going to give him an archetype like that, you know, the hateable yeah. movie star, like, and maybe that's the same <laughs> thing because it is, there's something about him that, like, he's so, he's so strong, it's okay to hate him. And, that smile of his will not, and it's, they even play on it in the film. That smile of his will protect him from, from any bad thought you might have about him. And then the film does a really great thing of using a scene from the original film and then actually playing into that so perfectly that it became, it's it, it's a totally apt metaphor for a dynamic I'm trying to describe about Tom Cruise that isn't entirely flattering. And that ends up in this movie. It's funny that you talk about Days of Thunder because I think that what distinguishes the time that we're talking about and that time of Tom Cruise's movie stardom is that when he starts working with great artists like Kubrick and De Palma and Paul Thomas Anderson and Cameron Crowe it just the work just skyrockets so that he's good in great things as opposed to good in vehicles
3: you're right yeah uh Tom Cruise. Like, he's a very smart actor. Like, I'm convinced we will never see him direct because he has figured out he doesn't need to direct at this point. He has, like, solidified his movie star persona and he is. He produces most of his own. Most of his movies. And he, like, casts directors.
4: That's that's the Warren Beatty thing. that's what I think of, or maybe Catherine Hepburn, but yeah, he learned from all of the best and he's perfected it.
3: And, but he will still let those, those directors like do their own thing. He lets Cameron Crowe do his own thing. And Paul Thomas Anderson do his own thing. I'm sure he does let them do
4: their own thing in the sense that he doesn't take director's credit or take writer's credit, but I also think that if they don't do what he wants them to do, we don't see that work. I think Cruz probably is just as in control as anyone on the Cruz productions. But you're right. He's smart because he knows how to, he's probably better at working with people and sharing credit and letting other people win and knowing when people are smarter than he is.
3: Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. Um, like, you'll see him work with a director, like, for two movies, and then move on. Like, he'll work with Edward Zwick for the Last Samurai, and then for a... Uh, so, one of the Jack Reacher movies, I think Jack Reacher 2. Uh, and then he moves on to... For Jack Reacher 2, Jack Reacher 1 was by... Uh, directed by Christopher McQuarrie. And then he kind of moves on to, to someone else. And of course, you know, I don't know the behind the scenes of like, if he's like, okay, well, I'm done with this guy. I'm, you know, we don't work well together. Or if he's just like trying to just infuse a new talent, a new, uh, a new direction, you know, a new uh, vision to what he wants his... Uh, his career to be, um, it's it's kind of hard to tell in his because his, his later career it's weird now as he's getting older. Tom Cruise has become more of an action star.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: Even like um, it's like the last non Mission Impossible movie he did was uh, American Made, mm-hmm. which is still. Which is still kind of its own, uh, its own kind of action movie, directed by Doug Lyman, who directed Edge of Tomorrow. Right. Uh, so there, he's working with the same director twice. Uh, he's working with Christopher McQuarrie again, or he has worked with him on Top Gun: Maverick, which we'll see eventually I guess there's there's probably I, I a think. thing
4: where I, it makes sense like you work with someone if you get if you've made as many movies as he ha- as he has you probably learn you work with someone once and as good as it is if it's good you by the end of it you figure out how you work best together and at that point it's probably a really good time to say you got anything else we could work on <laughs> this was good or i have another thing <laughs> that i was thinking of and now that we have everything rolling Let's just roll. Let's let's keep rolling. While at the same time, probably beginning a relationship with another director, several other directors. I'm sure there's constantly things in, you know, in development. He's probably got three to five things in development at any given time or more. Probably three to five is conservative. And, you know, as they pop, they pop. But who knows? I don't know his strategy. Certainly he's doing something that works. But. I gotta, I gotta bring us back to the, to the, to Vanilla Sky because, well, clearly we both want to um, host a Tom Cruise podcast, uh, which we, I don't know, if maybe I'm sure there's probably one that exists. We should probably come back to Vanilla Sky. So, the only other thing that I really wanted to talk about here was the ending and the, the. Original ending, and this is where, to me, again, the lifehouse bells start going off really hard. So in the... So the the, the ending that cut out was a lot closer to what's in Open Your Eyes, right? Yeah. And so what they took out was a scene where... Tom Cruise shoots Michael Shannon, like actually kills someone in the dream to prove it's all just a dream. And basically uh, gets, uh, gets Kurt Russell shot down by the cops and then they wake up and he realizes it is a dream. And then he goes and uh, goes up in this elevator with Noah Taylor and Noah Taylor has this great speech The
2: end of your real life and the beginning of Ellie's lucid dream, the one you purchased from us. A splice of 150 years which you didn't notice because you happened to be frozen at a temperature of 196 degrees below zero. From the moment you woke up on that street, nothing was real in a traditional sense. Your life was monitored by life extension and a panel of experts who followed your every thought.
4: Forgive me, I'm blowing your mind. Which sounds so much like the narration to Lifehouse, particularly on the album Psycho-Derelict. Music and vibrations are the basis of everything. They pervade everything. Human consciousness
1: is reflected by them. Atoms are vibrations between positive and negative forces. Some very subtle, some complex. But it's all music. Soon, we will switch in the whole world Every person wearing an experience suit will share this adventure with us.
4: And then he goes into an office with Tilda Swinton and she plays an ad for Ellie for him, which again really reminds me of a song from Psychoderelict called Early Morning Dream. That's all about this is the dream that we wake up dreaming. And it's so close that at this point my brain is just exploding while I'm watching this movie. And then, as you were saying, he goes up on top of this big building, says his goodbyes to everyone, and then jumps off of, as you said, a building that feels like the World Trade Center, but it can't be because the World Trade Center is in the background. But the scene of Tom Cruise jumping off of this building, again, in 2001, while we're having all these September 11th feelings, and you watch him, the way he falls is so reminiscent of horrific images from just earlier that year. Um, Well, this is the end of the movie, and I feel like it is... At the time, I think it might have felt like too much, like it was too much pressure on a nerve, even though I could tell it wasn't intentional. But now watching it, it feels much more poetic. Um, What say you?
3: I... I mean, it is very poetic to me. It was when in Open Your Eyes, Cesar, the Tom Cruise character, shoots a security guard to like kind of prove that it's a dream. And the Kurt Russell analog throws himself in front of Tom Cruise and gets shot up by uh, by the cops and then cut to black. And then they wake up on top of each other and they're like, well like but we're fine like and that's the moment he accepts it's a dream in uh, it's a vanilla skies it's those scenes were shot and we know because if you slow down the dvd or if you do pause really quickly on your streaming or whatever uh, you can see a scene uh, an image in that final montage of Tom Cruise shooting Michael Shannon, so that scene was shot, but cut out. And the Tom Cruise seems to he accepts that it's a dream. Almost like right after Tilda Winton shows him shows him the video, and that would make sense. So I feel like Cameron Crowe thought you. You don't need this scene of him shooting Michael Shannon to to find out to make sure for real that it is a dream. He goes right from Tillis office to running down the hallway, shouting, "It's a nightmare!" <laughs> in like a Twilight Zone kind of like comical.
4: It's a cookbook. Of, uh...
3: It's a cookbook. <laughs> yeah, exactly like the same the same tone. And he starts screaming, and it's hard to understand what he's screaming when he has this disfigured makeup on, but he's screaming tech support. Tech support, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when Noah Taylor shows up, because Noah Taylor is his tech support. And then when Noah Taylor tells him, like, I sold you life extension, I sold you the lucid dream, and Tom Cruise then just says, well, what the hell happened? You know, like, in that... Subtle moment with without anything big happening, right before that. It's just like a on an intellectual level, he understands that it is a dream. He didn't, uh, you know, murder someone and then nothing happened from that because it was just a dream. And also, like an. Notice that eyes. Tilda
4: Swinton and Noah Taylor are both English, like the Who. Again, the the lifehouseian grid element <laughs> is coded in this tone that is. They're not British in the original, and they're not American. It's not an American company. The fact that they're British, I think, is
3: telling. No, it's strange. So Noah Taylor, it turns out, is from all over. He he was born in the UK and spent his early childhood there, and then grew up in well, Australia. Well, that's the other
4: thing. Is so he was in flirting, which I love, with this at this point just recently exed Nicole Kidman, which I thought was again an odd <laughs> connection. But have you seen Flirting? I have not. Oh, it's a, it's a great, great film. In the way that My Bodyguard is a great film, like just sort of like a <laughs> subtle, child, like young person's film that's very sophisticated. Uh, but yeah, and great acting.
3: Uh, and this was the first thing I ever saw Tillis Swinton in. And she's playing an American and ex totally excellent in her role of like the perfect salesman selling salesperson selling David Ames on you know on living the dream forever and then she starts saying things that are extremely personal to him and that only he would know and saying uh like stuff that uh, Penelope Cruz has has said to him before as good vibrations is starting to play and then once Tom Cruise freaks out she there's a close up of her and she looks she turns left and looks directly at the camera mm. and it's a completely chilling moment one in
4: many in the film career of the great tilda swinton
3: yeah it's a it's a daring like choice to make to leave in your film to directly break the fourth wall and like look directly at the audience and like what does it all mean uh yeah it's uh this movie it's it's something else it's a lot to take in well uh, and i can understand why it would put people off but but give it a second watch so just to, to get to just to give it just a little bit more here.
4: So I just, I'm just looking at, as I'm I'm trying to unravel the Lifehouse thing, I'm just looking at at L-E. Like, what is, is, like, if he's trying to, if he's trying to tell us something with L-E, L-E, what is, what would L-E be? And then I was just like, oh, well, it's just the first and last letters of Lifehouse. (laughs) Again, maybe accidental, maybe synchronistic, but also potentially uh, intended. I, so I, The listeners don't know this, but I have a friend who worked on Vanilla Sky, uh, not above the line, but, you know, in communication with with Mr. Crow. And they there's a possibility I could at least get this uh, in, you know, close to his ears. So the goal here isn't to flatter him, but it might be to egg him on to be like, come on, just come come clean, man. Tell us. Tell us, am I crazy? Am I crazy? <laughs> or am I crazy like a fox? Am I? Did I catch you? Did I catch you being awesome, Cameron Crowe? Anyway, uh, yeah. Unless that bring, unless uh, that's that, that's the end of my notes about the film. I have a couple of other things I wanted to talk with you about before we wrap this up. But was there anything else you wanted to say about Vanilla Sky?
3: Uh, in the elevator, that long elevator ride, where Noah Taylor explains everything to him. That that elevator ride, it's it, it it's great. It explains a lot, and I think the the mystery being explained in any movie always puts off people. Like the last, the very final scene when the psychiatrist explains everything in Psycho is the one scene people universally hate from that movie. I kind of like it, but um, and that's something like that. David Lynch is very aware of. So, like, he he doesn't want to solve the, the mystery, right? So, everything he... So, that's why all his stuff is, like, so weird. So, you can, like, be wondering and mystified at the open-ended puzzle. Or, like, the maze, really. I thought... I wrote down that Vanilla Sky is a puzzle. It has a definite final solution. Right? Like, you put the pieces together, and this is what it makes. But, uh... Mulholland and Drive which came out October of 2001 and is you know a film about maybe about dreams and nightmares and reality what's real what's not real where did the dream start when did it turn into a nightmare uh, that's like that's the serious you know thinking person's movie about dreams and re- you know perceived reality uh, but it's more like a mate like one of those intricate like round circular mazes where it just looks like so a labyrinth uh, yeah a labyrinth like yeah so baroque so pretty with the details that you just kind of have to admire the work that went into it like you can try to solve the maze and you probably won't but the work like you can just like stand back and look at that and admire it and that's how i Think of like Mulholland Drive and, uh, you know, Twin Twin Peaks and uh, Lynch's other films, Lost Highway, uh, to a certain extent, though I'm less of a fan of Lost Highway. And Vanilla Sky is a very, it. it's a puzzle. Like at the end, this is what it is. And we hope you liked it. There's a few other ways to interpret it. We're not going to tell you you're wrong, but uh, here's the final image.
4: I like that you took us to David Lynch because one of the things, and I think we both had this reaction to going back and looking at Vanilla Sky, was being like, gosh, around this time, there were a lot of movies that dealt with this material of am I living in a dream, a simulation, and I'd already been thinking about that a lot because Rodney Asher, the director of Room 237, who's an acquaintance a friendly acquaintance of mine and just someone whose work I follow and someone who I know from the realm of people who engage in film that has to that deals with synchronicity and his new film A Glitch in the Matrix also deals with this idea and uh we could talk about that but I I I know we we both started to put together a list of films that deal with this and I was thinking it might be fun if we just go Go back and forth, and and read some films off our list that we feel like. And what I'd like to do, what I did for mine, is I used "Abre los ojos" "Open Your Eyes" as the starting date for this conversation. So, like 1997, but between 1997 and 2001, I found like ten films that are that ba- that explore some something like this theme. I don't know, what, was your, what were your
3: parameters? Uh, I just, I wrote down, as I was watching the film and listening to the commentary, I just wrote down what the movies that came to mind from that era uh, and a few more, a couple more recent movies that dealt with kind of the same thing about realities and dreams. But I realized like, yeah, there's where a few movies around 2000, 2001 that this is something that we were thinking of in the culture.
4: You know, and I guess I should just be, if you're out there listening to this and you're like, just pick this low hanging sink fruit and get it over with. Yes. I was in nightmare on Elm street, a movie that's all about dreams and reality. Okay. Uh, (laughs) We don't need to talk about it, but I know that someone that at least one person's head was out there and just being like, just, fucking say it okay done uh but <laughs> so uh leaving that out let's talk about some of these other films so the truman show is the first one that's on my list after abre los ojos the the 1998 film from peter weir i, I don't think think we need to talk about all of these films but I, tell me one from your list
3: all right so uh the earliest film on my list well, there's a TV show I have that's the earliest thing, The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Which, I mean, there's so many episodes about dreams and reality. And when Tom Cruise is alone in Times Square on the the big TV in Times Square, you know the one.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: We all know the one. I can't really describe it specifically, but you know the one. There's a Twilight Zone episode called Shadow Play On Which is about someone that is in a dream, he's in prison, and he's scheduled to be executed at midnight for, I think, for possibly a crime he didn't commit. Anyway, he's trying to convince people that he's in a dream, and it doesn't work, and then the execution happens, and he wakes up, and he's back in the cell, and he has to do the whole thing again and again. And uh, that is... Basically, this movie. Yeah, I mean that's there. I mean, talk about Crow just dropping in all these things, and if you catch it, that's fine. And if you don't, that's fine too. But it's like just woven into him, and he puts it in the movie. So, but the first proper movie I have on my list in 1990 mm-hmm. is Total Recall.
4: Oh, Philip K. Dick. Then, uh, so next on my list is Dark City from 1998, directed by Sam Raimi.
3: Cool. Uh, yeah, that one, I didn't think about that one, but it totally makes sense. Uh, next one on my list I have is uh, after Abrela uh, Soho's. It's, uh, <laughs> we'll probably talk about it. The Matrix.
4: Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, The Matrix, definitely. Uh, and we will definitely stick around, people, because the fireworks around The Matrix are going to really get you going, if you've enjoyed it this far. For me, the next one is also from 1999, David Cronenberg's Existence
3: oh my god and these I are love cronenberg. And what,
4: what, I, what we're talking and a lot of the, these people these directors we're talking about the best biggest the best and biggest directors at that time it, you know uh, total recall was
3: 1990 paul Verhoeven.
4: paul oh, paul Verhoeven, peter weir is true is the truman show dark city sam Raimi, existence is cronenberg the matrix is the wachowskis so what's what's up next for you
3: Dark City is Alex Proyas.
4: Oh, shit. Thank you. Why do I think that Sam Raimi directed that? Because I'm a dummy. I don't know. Sorry. (laughs) Thank Uh, you for correcting me. That would have been... I I like to leave my mistakes in if I'm corrected in the episode. If I'm not (laughs) corrected, I have to go back and fix them. So you just saved me tons of time in the editing room.
3: Thank you. Uh, From 2000 Memento.
4: Oh, shit. I didn't put Memento in mine. I had Fight Club from
3: 1999. Oh my God,
4: Fight Club. Which is, yeah, again, is this a dream or reality? And is shooting
3: some, is like, is it real when I blow up this thing? or like? Let's see. Uh, next on mine from 2001. Well, I already mentioned it, Mulholland Drive. Oh
4: yeah, I'd love it that that's on your list. That's perfect. So, and then 1999 is
3: being John Malkovich. Oh, also with Cameron Diaz. Mm-hmm. In an amazing like a real performance like you look at her filmography around this time and it's like it's weird like she's got like a film where she like really gives you know an actor's performance and then a like you know a charlie's angels
4: this is where i'm good this this is where i'm sorry but i got to lovingly world is wrong you here for a second it's one of the things that drives (laughs) me crazy we got three performances in the mix here being John Malkovich, Charlie's angels and and vanilla Sky I think all great performances, but the least impressive acting performance is the one in being John Malkovich, but it's the one she always gets credit for because she wears a an ugly wig and doesn't and isn't mm-hmm. and doesn't play like. Yeah, she... I don't know. I, and I love it. It's just like... It's like liking an actor because they have a big emotional scene because they cry. Or they. Do, mm-hmm. it's not even they cry that the other actor across from them is working so hard and at, at crying that they just need to look at them and our heart breaks and we're like, oh my God, that's the best actor in the world. And it's like, he was thinking about lunch. But in this other movie where he has to climb a fucking train and do all this other stuff while acting, that's some fucking acting. You want to see... You know, Charlie's Angels is... Cameron Diaz's performance in Charlie's Angels is such a masterpiece of trolling. It's the, it's, I don't know. I love. I, sorry, I'm. I just, I just had to say that every time I hear someone say that she's so good in being John Malkovich, I just want to say she trolled you again because. If that's all it takes for her to act like she's like she's working so hard at these other things. If that's all she and if she could get away with doing that, she might. But everyone knows she's Cameron Diaz and she has to be beautiful. Anyway, I'm sorry for interrupting, but you just stepped on one of my intellectual landmines. (laughs) As someone who works in a video store, I'm sure you've stepped on many before. I've interviewed some (laughs) of your friends. (laughs) So continue. Sorry. But being John Malkovich, that was my that was my uh, selection.
3: Let's see. Uh, from two thousand one, and Richard Linklater, Waking Life. Yes, I had that on my
4: list. Maybe it might be my favorite. If I if I had to choose one that I want to watch right now, I think this might be the one. Waking. That life. was
3: a it was a perfect movie for me. That, that came out. I was also um, sixteen or seventeen. It's a perfect film to watch at that age, and it's perfect that you know it ends with. Uh, Wiley Wiggins talking to Richard Linklater, asking him like, "Well, how do I wake up?" And Richard Linklater just says, "Like, well, just just wake up." <laughs> and that's the constant. Uh, it's a, a motif, a leap motif in Vanilla Sky. Like, just wake up, David. Just yeah. wake up. That's how you solve your problems. Just wake up. And it's an unspoken theme in Eyes Wide Shut. Just wake up and see the, you know, the the boring, how, how actually boring you are. <laughs> and you're going to have to actually work to keep your to keep your wife.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Before we settled on Vanilla Sky, we were talking about doing American Beauty. And I went back and watched it and I was like, I just I can't get a full head of steam for this one, even though I, I still like it. I just didn't have I just it didn't. Inspire me, but after watching Vanilla Sky, which I real I, now I'm so glad we chose, I thought about American Beauty as being one of these films, even though it's not. It, you know, it's sort of like, uh, and I told you when we were discussing this in preparation, it reminds me of Brian's meeting David fan edit of mm-hmm. Meet Dave. Like American Beauty is one of these films with the science fiction parts taken out and it's just about it it's about a guy who is realizing (laughs) that he's a robot and then he needs to become a sort of a sociopath and die in order to enter the matrix or enter the grid or wake up or like that's basically the theme of that movie and and actually thinking about it that way makes me like it a little bit more do you have any more on your list? My, I'm, I just have a couple that uh, that fall outside of my orig- original Blast Zone on this.
3: Um, I've got, and it's like jumping ahead in time, um, uh, from 2004 and Michelle Gondry and Charlie Kaufman yeah. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. The best one. Sorry. That really reminds me because, I mean, like dreams and memories, and, but especially the end, which ends up being so like... Uh, romantic and wistful and hopeful as uh, Clementine Kate Winslet is being finally erased from his memory and they're hugging and she says, meet me in Montauk. Yep. And then we find out that what happened at the beginning of the movie is actually uh, happening at the end of the movie and they're meeting in Montauk for the first time. He just happened or, you know, they're meeting again now and he just happened To go there and his memory dream version of her told him, meet me in Montauk. And at the very end of Vanilla Sky on the roof, when he's talking to the dream version of Sophia, and he says, so, like, I'm frozen and you're dead and I love you. And she says, I'll find you again. And how? Like... (laughs) Yeah, it's in
4: another life it, when we are cats. When we
3: are both cats. <laughs> ah, both cats. I, Sorry. I I love it. I love that that line. Um the dialogue in this movie is very like old-fashioned in a way. It's like you can I can see Billy Wilder in AIL Diamond writing it or Howard Hawks and it's not like people talk, but it's how you think you talk when you're meeting someone and you say something totally nonsensical, but you think and hope it sounds you know very charming and winning yeah so that uh i'll find you again and meet me in montauk or just like the the melancholy wistful hopeful dream versions uh of these people talking to the real person and you know then materializing hopefully materializing somehow in the real life afterwards And
4: what what really sells, like when I think of that, what makes, to me, what makes that movie transcend, its real secret weapon, is John Bryan and his music. We obviously devoted many hours to discussing John Bryan in an earlier episode, but I'm really glad you mentioned that because it reminds me that John Bryan is credited on vanilla sky all the way back in 2001 we didn't mention it in the episode but he's credited as the talent maker the talent maker oh, i did John i did Bryan. not see
3: that i did not catch that
4: <laughs> so yep cameron crow is pretty cool now that brings us back to a glitch in the matrix did you watch it
3: I did. I did. I watched it last night.
4: When I watched the scene that was cut out of Vanilla Sky with shooting the cop, played by Michael Shannon, I couldn't help but think about this film, Glitch in the Matrix, because spoiler alert on Glitch in the Matrix, folks, uh, it sort of talks about how people, how someone had emulated the story of the Matrix and ended up killing their parents because they thought he thought they weren't real. Uh,
3: I'm sorry. Yeah, there's like, parts of it that are very interesting and parts of it that are a real bummer.
4: <laughs> yeah. So that's a film that deals very specifically with this idea of like, are we not in a sci-fi way, but that there are a lot of people who and I don't know, I don't know. It's one of those ideas that you can't a hundred percent say it's not real. It's like reincarnation. Like, how are you gonna argue against it? I mean, it doesn't maybe you don't believe it. But you can't really a hundred percent say it's not possible. And the the idea of living in a simulation is is like that as well. And I it did make me think that there was probably something that was responsible, not just creative, but sort of a certain amount of cultural responsibility thinking around taking out the scene with Tom Cruise killing Michael Shannon from Vanilla Sky like you can put that in an in, a little indie film that is going to be seen, you know, maybe might get seen by people and it's kind of jarring and it's it's an important emotional impact. But if you know you're making a movie that's as huge as this, maybe you look at it and say mm,
3: someone might react to that. Uh yeah, totally because in so in the Matrix, you know, um everybody that's not the characters you know the, the the crew it morpheus's crew is you know just the cogs and the batteries in the machine but they're never like they're the people that are trying to kill are like agent smith and you know his uh, his crew you know it's not they're not just like well i can just shoot this person on the street because they're not real so it doesn't matter and in uh, in open your eyes Uh, Cesar does shoot the security guard to try and like prove that it's not real. And then he shoots the security guard again and then again, and then he really shoots him up and it's like bloody. And it's like, not cool (laughs) to watch (laughs) like, Oh, what? Like tone it down, dude. But that actor, the performance he's giving, like, like he's taken that character to that point where he's like, because everything is so uh, low-fi in Open Your Eyes, a solo budget, the question of is this possibly reality? Is this all a trick being played on him by you know a, a cabal? Is a lot more yeah. um, plausible in Open Your Eyes. Like the scene on the roof with Penelope Cruz and the the analog for Kurt Russell. It it still feels like. Like well, maybe yeah. everyone is still on in on it because it's it's just a scene on a roof. There's no like obviously you know uh, magical CGI sky swirling around them. Uh, so when he does that, when he shoots the security guard multiple times, it it works better though. It's still still uh, you know jarring. To watch and like yeah, if Tom Cruise had shot Michael Shannon in this movie at least once, uh, it would be it would be really off-putting. Uh but yeah, it's good that he that I, I think Crow left that that out when you uh are pausing through that final montage of images that shot is in there and it's a bit it's a bit jarring and off-putting, but uh, you know it's still in there, just as one of like the random scenes, one of the random thoughts going through David Ames's mind.
4: I think we may have got to the end of this movie. Do we have anything else to discuss?
3: The only other thing I want to get in is I said earlier this movie like had a big influence on me. Like I did not know who Billy Wilder was before this. I had heard the name Truffaut maybe a couple times, but I didn't know what day for night was or Jules and Jim and just listening to the commentary and seeing all these clues, the, but the biggest impact uh, was Audrey Hepburn who I just uh, absolutely fell, <laughs> fell in love with and became my like platonic ideal <laughs> of uh, of a soulmate, because that was the dream, because she was the dream girl in Vanilla Sky. When Tom Cruise wakes up at the very beginning, Sabrina is playing on the TV at the end of his bed. And it's a special TV that like retracts down into the floor. And the scene that's playing in Sabrina, it's Audrey Hepburn dancing, by herself in the tennis courts and she's waiting for William Holden to come meet her. William Holden, who she's like dreamed about for since she was a little girl and now he's paying attention to her and she's going to be one of his girlfriends. But that's not who comes and meets her. It's Humphrey Bogart. And then over the course of the movie, it turns out Humphrey Bogart is the one she belongs with. You know, she doesn't get her dream. She gets... A much better reality which is vanilla sky and then at the end cameron crow made sure that penelope cruz is wearing a coat that looks like the coat audrey Hepburn was wearing in sabrina so i had to i had to watch this movie sabrina like it's an old movie maybe it'll play on the old movie channel what's that called tcm and i started watching tcm and then i had to watch every audrey Hepburn movie and then because of that i watched More Billy Wilder movies, and I watched William Wilder movies, and I watched Blake Edwards movies. And I got into this whole door of classic cinema opened up to me because Cameron Crowe referenced Audrey Hepburn in Vanilla Sky. And I watched Truffaut movies because Cameron Crowe mentioned, referenced Jules and Jim in Vanilla Sky. And I started listening, started really listening to REM and listening to Beth Orton. One of the images that flashes in the montage of David Ames falling is an album cover of Beth Orton called, uh, I think, Daybreaker, I think. Anyway, I have that CD. I bought it when I went to New York for college and I was at Tower Records and I saw the, uh, the Beth Orton section and like, oh my God, there's, this is the image from Vanilla Sky. And so I bought it and I listened to Beth Orton now because of Cameron Crowe and, yeah, and I wanted to write like him and one of the things I like told my screenwriting professor on like the first day, it was like, but like, it, does it, does what I wrote sound like Cameron Crowe? Mm-hmm.
4: I think it's just, um, I don't know. It's exciting to me to hear you talk about all of the ways that this film was a doorway into stuff. Because I like I have a similar experience, similar but very different experience. I would, I think your experience sounds you know deeper than mine. Mine was more one of see of recognizing a lot of stuff that I already knew because I'm maybe a little bit closer to Cameron Crowe's age, and but I think that that's one of the great things that a film can do is point you in the right direction culturally again if you're going to be one of the biggest films in the world which you know that you are coming off of jerry Maguire, and eyes wide shut and you know like everything that's going on tom cruise at that moment everything that was pointing at it it's one of those moments where i think i just watched coming to america have you seen it yet
3: the uh the the new one coming to America yeah. the sequel I I have seen it yeah
4: I don't know about you but I felt like I felt the pressure that Craig Brewer was under with that and I think he succeeded Let's not uh, we don't need to you don't need to go on record because I don't I actually don't want us to to dev, to devolve into this conversation but my point was just to say that it's a high wire act and it's rare when someone is even able to do it a little bit right. And uh, Vanilla Sky is an example to me of someone, as, especially as we've been talking about it and dissecting it, of like how many kinds of different films he's making, and he's doing all of them very well. So he's doing a romance film, he's doing a sci-fi film, but he's also doing a Tom Cruise movie. And he's also doing this cultural milkshake that he's feeding to your generation of viewers watching this, knowing that this is going to be your way into all of this stuff. And so he's like kind of giving you a library, giving you this wonder. It's just, it's, it rewards listening to him talk about it in the, like how much he puts stuff in there. Like he talks about, if you check out that chalkboard, there's some really cool stuff there. I actually tried to check out that chalkboard. I couldn't really figure it out. Maybe you could help me. But uh, but I don't know. It's, just, it's a great thing that that effort on his part is rewarded, not just with my being like, cool, oh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, but really you pouring through it and being like, okay, I'm going to watch this film because it's in this one frame and I'm going to read this book because it's in this one frame and I'm going to listen to this song and buy this record and get into like Beth Orton, God, what a like the story you're telling is the dream story. I bet Beth Orton probably doesn't go around thinking, man, vanilla sky, pro-, like she probably got a nice paycheck and was like very little in the movie in terms of how much the movie there is compared to how much Beth Orton there is. But you were able to pull the Beth Orton out of it and, you know, high five to Cameron Crowe, high five to Beth Orton and high five to you for this movie facilitating that. That's amazing to me. And then to bring it all the way around that I am now able to lay Lifehouse on you and have it be this aha moment, even like the, it's still paying off for you. It's like, you feel like you've been to this library and you've read every book in it. I just laid a major book on you. That's in this, that's at the heart of this library. And it makes me wonder what else is in there for you or for people who are maybe at the same place, like looking at this film and being like, Audrey who? You know?
3: Yeah. Li- listening to, to Lifehouse and then uh, watching Vanilla Sky again and seeing it, you know, from a new angle and yeah. And it just made me feel like, wow, like I, I still feel the same watching it now as I did when I'm watching it when I was 17 and having to like take all my friends to watch this movie and having to sneak some of them in because you know it was rated R and not all of us were 17 and then the DVD came out so I had to make everyone watch it at my house and then I made everyone watch Open Your Eyes too. <laughs> oh, I forgot about all about that. But yeah, that that well, happened. That happened. That's awesome.
4: Yeah, you were really uh, you were you were a proselytizer for this film. So bring it back to Glitch in the Matrix. Do you feel like like it's it feels like maybe everyone who was com- had their one of these kind of films that really spoke to them. And for you, as a creative person, maybe more of a romantic and more of a intellectual in terms of like wanting to pursue culture and devour it, that Vanilla Sky was your millennium film. And so, rather than someone who was inspired by Fight Club, who shot people. You just made them watch Open Your Eyes and Vanilla Sky against their will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a better form of socio-pathological uh, patho- behavior. Yeah. I, definitely. I, uh... Not probably. Absolutely, definitely <laughs> yeah. a better one. Rating. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. So, there are two last little tributaries on the way out here. Um, so, in preparation for this, I shared with you a fan film that I created called the Lifehouse Matrix that I will post on the page for this podcast. If you've listened this far, if you've hung with us this long into this, you deserve this. Uh, for better or for take that as the as a uh an offer or a threat. I'm just just time to speak speaking the truth. But uh the Lifehouse Matrix was my taking a pretty Close approximation of what Lifehouse would have been based upon my many years of historical research on this and collecting of all the materials. It's one of those things that fans of the Who do—they make their own version of Lifehouse, just like Beach Boys fans used to make their own versions of Smile, or uh, Prince fans would rec- would rebuild the Black Album. And it's stuff that fans do, and marrying that to the images of the Matrix and. This is something that people do make sync films where they put a record with a film. Usually it's a record that is that where the running order is ve- is more well-known, like Dark Side of the Moon with The Wizard of Oz or The White Album with Rosemary's Baby. Although with The White Album, because there's a mono version, a stereo version, there's some debate over which is the, the perfect pairing. And there's always a question about where you start it. But these are the things that people who play with sync film play with. But uh, some of them... They all work because that's how our minds work. But some of them, like the ones I described with uh, Rosemary's Baby and the White Album or uh, Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz, are ones that are more corroborated synchronicities because other people watch it and are like, oh, my God, that just feels really that syncs up way too well. Some of them really work. I feel like the Lifehouse Matrix is one that really works other people who follow sync film have sort of corroborated this but i think you're one of the first folks i know who's more of a cinema fan that i've laid this on did you have any reaction to
3: it it really um, helped me like understand the whole concept and plot of the life of lifehouse and i don't know if it changed the way i viewed the matrix but it helped me understand the, the rock opera lifehouse and I did see the similarities of like the between certain songs and what was happening and like at the end the, the one note you know that 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 changes everything when uh, and neo being the one and now he's going to mm-hmm. like he he doesn't like to beat up agent Smith he jumps into agent Smith and destroys him from within. And then knowing that the end of The Matrix, which is actually a pretty subversive ending for an action movie, oh, yeah. is not like yeah. we're gonna blow up the bad guy layer. It's Neo making a call, saying like,
4: I know you're listening, I know you're out like, there. I know
3: you're afraid. And you're afraid. Like, and I'm gonna, yeah. like, we're gonna take you down, like, bit by bit. It's like, it's a pretty cool, <laughs> radical ending for it's for an action movie it's funny
4: it's funny because that radical that is also the ending of aloha
3: (laughs) yes it's the one note it's the one note that destroys you know the the system the the bad guys the man yeah yeah that bradley cooper actually purposely (laughs) like so like almost like one-to-one like he uses his old laptop with that's got like rock band stickers all over it and he overloads the satellite with all the like music and the sounds. Like yeah, he uses the one note to, to, to stop <laughs> to, to stop bad guy Bill Murray. <laughs> uh yeah, that is that yeah. is cool. So yeah, Lifehouse definitely uh I thought it, it did work well synced up to to the Matrix. Uh, but it really then made me go, huh, to uh, to Aloha. <laughs> Which I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I didn't...
4: Yeah, it I, when that happened at the end of that movie, I was just so like that movie just had me coming and going. It was ups and downs. It was just highs and lows. I just, I, I was so it it's you know that To me, I think that's a sign that, that probably Cameron Crowe made that movie considering it is like, I'm just going to make, I'm making the next Cameron Crowe movie and whether it hits or misses culturally, he's just on it because there's some things in there that are masterful and some things where I was like, all right, but you know, if you want to reveal that, like whatever, you know, you're whatever. I don't want, I don't want to be critical of the film because I feel that like the film also... Got a lot of criticism, and there's certainly things to criticize about any th- any film. But a film that has I've heard so much bad about that has so much good in it, feels like, at least on this show, let's just focus on how much there's worth in in that movie that, that is good. Um, there, and, and speaking of which, we didn't mention it at all, and I think it's maybe because you haven't. I think you said you haven't seen it yet. But uh, Cameron Crowe's series Roadies was so great. It had that sense of someone who really knows what they're talking about with music. And a lot of times, as someone who really cares about music, and I guess thinks they know a lot about it myself, uh, a lot of times when music is in films, I get offended by just like the sort of amateurish way that they look at it. But Rhodey's was a really, you know, it was it was all the stuff you like about Cameron Crowe with the romance and the, the lovable asshole learning how to be a
3: human being. Um, yeah, Cameron Crowe does. But... Yeah, he does like the, the the handsome, charming, confident character that you still like that you're rooting for. But like, but he pulls it off. He pulls it off and say anything in Jerry Maguire and Vanilla Sky. And I, I think also in Elizabeth Town, though, um, you know, that film is, I think, unfairly maligned not on the same level as jerry Maguire, yeah. uh, but i think it's i think there's still good stuff in it
4: well then i would highly recommend finding roadies it feels like that you should fill in that blank spot in your cameron crow appreciation if you do if you do the cameron crow director's wall the question is will you do an episode about the season or will you do an episode about each episode hmm.
3: Not sure.
4: Yeah, I guess you'll have to take that up with Brian. There's a lot of questions here. I would encourage doing a sidebar. You know what I would actually, you know, look, we're going to, I'm going to have a production meeting with you about a show that I have, that I'm not a part of the director's wall publicly here at three hours and 45 minutes into the show (laughs) (laughs) and, and say, you should have a, like a special bonus Patreon sidebar running parallel to the regular podcast so you come out with your episode about I guess would you the first one would be Fast Times at Richmond High because that's the one Uh, yeah yeah that
3: would be the first one
4: what a great first movie god damn what a great way to start so but you start there and then you'd also do the on the bonus episode you do the first episode of roadies Hmm. and then you'd move on to the next one then you do the second episode as a bonus episode and uh you know, give you had have, have people pay for that bonus content man make a little cha-ching. Cameron crow would not but disapprove that, uh, he's, he's all about being successful and he wants you to be successful too. That is actually that's why a good you idea. subscribe to the Cameron Crow course in successful filmmaking. <laughs> you got to start when you're eleven <laughs> if you haven't if you haven't started when you're eleven, you're kind of screwed if you want to be on the Cameron Crow track but you know, if if Zoe Dashnell is your sister, then that's a good start. Yeah. So that was my my I hope clever and graceful way to seek into talking about the director's wall, the podcast that you host with our friend Brian Connolly, our our shared co-host, and you're in the middle of talking about Francis Ford Coppola, a man who uh, I don't know. Do you see any any Correlations between are there any Coppola Crow connections?
3: Uh, not so far.
4: They're both writer directors.
3: That is true. It's uh, it, it's weird because you, Coppola is someone you don't think of immediately as a writer director, but he does write everything that he does, even the stuff he didn't get credit for. It's usually for some, I mean, according to him, uh, like a, a guild reason, like he didn't get cre- writing credit on The Outsiders because he did a rewrite and the writers guild ruled against him that his draft didn't didn't count so he didn't get writing credit on the outsiders but insist that he did actually like write you know a draft of the outsiders yeah he <laughs> it's strange like it 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 comes up in the podcast but it's still it's still hard to think of him as a writer director I'm not sure why, maybe because he does a lot of novel adaptations.
4: Which is a big part of writing screenplays. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there's another connection, which is that like... uh, So so Cameron Crowe, as a young man, really got trained as a professional at an early age, having to churn out articles for Rolling Stone magazine. Francis Ford Coppola got his training in another kind of sort of factory of entertainment, which is the Corman, you know, the Corman school, basically. And both of them bring that kind of, I don't know, I think of, it's not that Coppola is a journalist, but they both have that sort of journalist thing of like, oh, I can come in and knock out a piece for you. What do you? How many words do you need? What do you? Yeah. What, what? In a there's a way that I feel like they bring that fast facility to their uh, to their films. I don't know. That would be another connection. Try to think of any other. Like this is one of the things we do. At the end of the podcast, as you know, where I, I talk, talk to Brian, trying to find some way to draw a connection to the director's wall. I hope you appreciate
3: all the promotion I do for your show, man. I do. I do. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, Vanilla Sky was a movie thrown into production pretty quickly, like Almost Famous as 2000, Vanilla Sky 2001. It was shot in 2000 in New York in the fall and winter of, of 2000. And... The like uh, story behind it was, yeah. So like Tom Cruise owned the rights and approached Cameron Crowe about making it, and there was this impending uh, actors actors guild strike that never happened. But uh, of course, everyone thought it was going to happen, and so the idea was, well, let's do this movie quick before before the strike happens, and it was all turned out pretty pretty quickly and under a lot of pressure and then ultimately the actor strike didn't, didn't happen. And who even remembers now, but, uh, but yeah, there, there was so this, uh, this certain kind of like energy to it of like of it being a cover, you know, Cameron Crowe doesn't have his original, doesn't have a fully formed original uh, like wholly from him right idea yet but like hey there's this movie the movie i saw the movie you own the rights to let's do our version of that quick now before the strike happens and and that's you know how vanilla sky came about oh, that's great that's great i love that. it's kind of like uh, has... coppola doing doing like rumble fish like
4: rolling into Rumblefish right out of uh, yeah like yeah. i've got
3: The crew here. I've got the actors here. There's a little bit of money left over. Like, let's let's make another movie right now, quick, before you know, before anyone tells us to stop.
4: I was also thinking about how Dracula, his Coppola's Dracula, feels like a cover. I've tried to get film of Coppola films that feel like covers, and that feels very similar. Like this has to hit all these beats. I know what those beats are. You know what those beats are. Now let's just blow them up.
3: Oh yeah, I. I've got a lot to say about the Dracula about Francis Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, It's yeah, it it hits all the Dracula beats. If you're expecting to see a Dracula movie, it is in there. And then there's so much more and told in such a, I mean, to me a unique and never before seen kind of way, even though the, You know, the criticism, the joke about that movie is that it's been totally done to death. Dracula done to death. But uh, no, I don't think you've seen a Dracula movie like Francis Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula.
4: Yeah. Any other films of his that you feel like qualify as like covers?
3: I mean, the only... Oddly enough, Godfather 2 comes to mind because he, you know, as a sequel he didn't want to do, he didn't want to do Godfather 1, but he did it and then didn't want to do Godfather 2, but he did it on uh, with the uh, agreement of Robert Evans is not involved. Paramount uh, production chief Robert Evans is not involved and I get to do it my... My way, and so he makes a like big budget prestige art film where there's two parallel storylines, two parallel timelines running together, and it's uh, I mean it's definitely a Godfather movie, it's definitely a Coppola movie, but it's uh, like tonally it it does match godfather one but the, the structure with the whole like the flashbacks to young vito corleone and then flashing forward to like uh at, in quotes present day michael corleone telling the rise of the father and the fall of the son was like well here's how i'm gonna make it interesting for myself like you want me to do another godfather fine but it's gonna be like this. And it, I mean, it works, but it is so, it really is an odd, it really is an odd movie. It sure is. I have, well, it's a movie that confuses me.
4: I can't, I, I really don't think we should get into this at this, at this late mm-hmm. date. I, I've been keeping you on this call for too damn long, but I'll just, let's, Uh, I'm going to put this out there. Maybe we could talk about it when I'm on your podcast when we maybe when we have me on to I think I you I've you have me booked to talk, be on the Rainmaker yeah, episode. We'll get there. I know, I know. You have, there's plenty of time. It's a, it's a, you're everyone's getting the everyone all the other, you know, the cool people get the you know, the, the loved films. But I got I'm coming into to champion and save the day on the rainmaker. But when I do, you can ask me and all the listeners who fa- are following this when we get to that point, you'll you'll just go look at for the director's wall, see if my episode's up yet. But you ask me, what are the like the glaring I can't believe nobody talks about them all the time flaws in this supposedly greatest movie ever made. <laughs> Which is great. It's just the it I, the i the the fact that there are some things that I recognize that are so like it makes my brain hurt that they're wrong in the movie and that nobody ever mentions them. It's just like what's going on. It's like what well, ah, ha. It makes me think the world is wrong, <laughs> AJ. It makes me think the world hmm. is wrong. I it's like I had to. I don't know. Maybe I should do something about that.
3: Maybe a podcast. <laughs>
4: maybe a podcast. Yeah, I had a podcast called The Radio eight Ball show. I still do it sometimes, but uh I th- I'd rather talk about synchronicity in films than synchronicity in reality right now. Synchronicity in reality is is rough. Whereas synchronicity in films is, is you know, going back to 2001, looking at that vanilla sky, walking down the street with our with arm in arm like we're on the cover of a Bob Dylan the record. The freewheeling Bob
3: Dylan. I bought that CD because Cameron co referenced it in this movie. And then I really got into Bob Dylan, but pre-electric Bob Dylan because I'm very cool.
4: Well, now you need to go check out the the film. The kids are all right.
3: Yeah. I've never seen that. The, so I will.
4: Oh, it's one of the best rock docs. It is a great way to get to know the who it really captures their spirit. So, uh, yeah, let's uh like, is there anything else? Where can, where can people find so, you? So uh,
3: I am on uh, Letterboxd at AJGO. And I'm on Twitter at the same thing, but I am more active on Letterboxd. Twitter is just not not doing it for me these days. So I I don't get on there very much. Uh, and of course, I'm uh, co-host of the Director's Wall, and I do occasionally... Update my blog cinema then and now.blogspot.com. Uh, Crow yep. said that Billy Wilder told him that his goal was to make a movie that people will talk about for 15 minutes afterwards, at least 15 minutes. And with Vanilla Sky, Cameron Crowe wanted to make a movie that people could uh, talk about afterwards and have uh, conversations about. And, and I think we we have more than. <laughs> More than satisfied. Mission
4: accomplished, Mister Crow. Yeah. Mission more than accomplished.
3: So, I, uh, I I apologize to the world is wrong listeners for the longest episode ever, or perhaps an unexpected miniseries. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to part five right now, maybe.
4: <laughs> no, no, we we put it we there. It's all going to come out together uh so uh yeah well it's been a it's been a blast i can't believe that you've given me this much time Uh, i hear children screaming in the background so i i hope they're everyone's okay uh not now but throughout the show i heard some they 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 are being being tended
3: to uh but they are on a nap strike so uh after afternoons get a bit uh get a bit testy lately
4: you know, well, they're probably they're they're on uh, they're in solidarity with the Amazon workers. So good yeah. for them, good for them. Well, uh, please write to us at contact at podcast dot com. You can find us on Instagram and at at the world is wrong podcast. And if you would be so kind as to write nice ratings or reviews about us, that will help other people find us. And I guess until next time, I just wanted to remind you that, sad as it is to say it, the world is wrong. And uh, wherever you are, it's probably wrong about you.
0: When will you call me? Don't say soon. I hate it when you say soon.
4: Come on. Come on. Danny oh, Bramson. Oh, so
0: time?
1: this is what's become of rock and roll smashed guitar behind a glass case displayed on some rich guy's wall it was a gift actually i like it Whoa, whoa 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 so how did you get all this stuff this apartment this life i see How about if you help me? <laughs> yeah, unless I'm pointing in here. You are. But the food's good. See, I've got this little problem. i got a stalker. It doesn't sound life threatening. But I need a cover. I need for you to pretend we're having a simulating conversation
4: and you are wildly entertained. I <laughs> know <laughs> it's tough.
1: I'll improvise.
4: She's uh, right across the room and she's burning a hole in my back right now. Isn't she?
1: Red dress, strappy shoes? Yes. Wow. She's really staring at you. And she seems to be growing less happy.
0: I think she's the saddest girl to ever hold a martini.